Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host, Simon Wemmers here. One of my writers, in this case, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin's written me a script, The Menendez Brothers, Innocent or Guilty. And I see that it's absolutely massive, Kevin. So sit down, relax, or I mean, I don't know what you're up to. Maybe you're on a really long run. It'll be a really long run if you're like, I'm going to run for the length of the podcast uh, or the, the YouTube show, however you get this, where you're going to be out there for a while <laughs> because this is long. I uh, I have a half-empty coffee. I should probably top that up. But let's get into it, shall we? It can be difficult to guess what the hot new item in the collectibles world is going to be. <laughs> okay, this is where we start, huh? Occasionally, it's obvious, like the recent one-of-one one serialized The One Ring from Magic the Gathering's Lord of the Rings-themed expansion a card that was sold to Post Malone for a reported $2.6 billion. Oh. My. Lord. Well, Congratulations, That's amazing. Usually, however, when an item grabs the public's attention, it's for reasons that could not have been predicted. We didn't normally carry sports cards at the comic store where I worked, but in 2007, we had to bring in cases of Topps baseball cards as customers frantically tried to pull the Derek Jeter card from PAX. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Unlike Magic the Gathering, Lord of the Rings, Topps baseball cards, Derek Jeter. I don't know who any of these people or any of these products are. A card like that would not normally have been worth anything, but a mischievous worker at Topps had photoshopped President George W. Bush into the crowd and deceased Yankee Mickey Mantle into the dugout. That's pretty cool, though. The story hit major news outlets, and suddenly the otherwise meaningless card was selling for hundreds of dollars. But back in 1990, the collectible-making headlines wasn't a rare, one-of-a-kind item or a prank from a possibly disgruntled employee. It was the NBA hoops card for the Knicks point guard, Mark Johnson. And we're back to me having no idea what's going on. I'm like, the Knicks? NBA? Hoop guard? Point guard? I don't know what any of this is! <laughs> Sports cards often featured action shots of the players from actual games with the crowd behind the players generally out of focus. However, Johnson was standing near the sideline when his card's photo was taken, meaning that a few of those fortunate enough to have courtside seats that day could be seen clear as day on his card. Exactly two fans on either side of Johnson are in focus in the picture, and when the NBA hoops cards released that year, people immediately recognized two of the faces. They were the same two faces that had been plastered over the news for months, Lyle and Eric Menendez. Wait, are these the people who are the subject of our... Are these our criminals today or something? The Menendez brother had killed their parents. What? Before going on a million-dollar spending spree, a spree that included courtside tickets to that Knicks games. No, you didn't. That's insane. Wait, these two guys... They just happen to be photographed and printed on this baseball card. That's... What are the odds? Back in the 90s, we all thought they were murderers. Not only was it the only narrative being pushed by the media, but a few years after their arrest, they were convicted of first-degree murder. Well, that's why you think they'd be a murderer, isn't it? It's like, why do you think I'm a murderer? <laughs> because you were convicted of first-degree murder, mate. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> that makes sense. Yet despite both pleading not guilty to the crime, neither brother disputed the fact that they had indeed killed their parents. So how could they possibly have claimed to be innocent? Well, they'd be like, it's an accident or manslaughter or something. There's lots of like, ways to kill someone that's not murder. <laughs> Sounds like I'm giving advice, doesn't it? <laughs> like Saul Goodman. <laughs> There's lots of ways to kill someone that's not murder. <laughs> 
In more recent years, however, public perception of the case has started to shift. Not only is there broader support for the brothers, but new evidence has emerged that may support their claims. So is it possible that these men who admitted to killing their parents could not only get a new trial, but could find themselves acquitted? Oh my. I'm very curious as to how this is all going to play out over the course of this course of this extremely lengthy episode. Coming to America. Jose Enrique Mendenez was born in 1944 in Havana, Cuba. His father had been a professional soccer player who had since retired and started his own accounting firm. <laughs> it's a career path change, isn't it? What do you do? Professional soccer player, what do you do now? Accounting. <laughs> Okay. And his mother was a champion swimmer who would eventually be inducted into Cuba's Hall of Fame. Um, wait, really? The only thing I'm missing there is like, and she went later went on to become an actuary. <laughs> actuary is the person who works with all those numbers and works out when you're going to die, right? Like the insurance people. With much of the nation living in poverty, Jose was lucky to be born into such a prominent upper class family at least at first. Jose had two older sisters, but he was the only boy which resulted in him being a spoiled brat. Well, that's not the reason he resulted. Like, I've got one boy and one girl as my kids, and I'm working hard not to spoil them. <laughs> I feel like my wife works less hard not to spoil them. I'll come home and be like, oh, new toys, huh? <laughs> On a Thursday, just no reason, just new toys. And it's like, I get it, but it's also like, I don't know. I'm like, we shouldn't just buy them new stuff. Like, and it's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's not all the time or anything. But I'm like, just don't spoil him. Let's not spoil him. Don't spoil him. Nowadays, I think most of us would expect the only girl to be the spoiled child, but it was the 1940s, and Jose was the male heir to the family. Anyway, he was rarely, if ever, disciplined, and his parents seemed to believe that he could do no wrong. That sounds like a great way to bring up your heir. Like, the guy who's going to take over your business. It's like, <laughs> let's just spoil him. That's, that makes sense. He's going to have a great understanding of money. Anyway, he was rarely, if ever, disciplined, and his parents believed that he could do no wrong. It certainly helped that he was extremely athletic and competitive, just as both of his parents had been, so they undoubtedly believed that he was destined for incredible accomplishments as well. It's also speculated that his parents not only refused to discipline him, but they actively encouraged him not to obey others. Not as some grand act of defiance or anything, just they taught him that he was superior to others so that he didn't need to listen to them. While I'm sure that was great for his self-esteem, it resulted in more than a few problems. <laughs> I feel like that should have read, well, I'm sure that was great for his self-esteem, it also resulted in him being a complete douchebag. <laughs> being an outspoken renegade who doesn't work well with others and doesn't play by the rules is great if you're the fictional protagonist of a cop drama, but less so if you're an elementary school student. Yes, and just generally less so if you live in the real world. Like People who are douchebags tend to like not get on that well because they're douchebags. And unless, and obviously like a few people strike it lucky and end up being successful. But most people who are successful probably know how to get on with others because there's been a long path to the top where there's been others involved who they've really you know trodden on <laughs> no i'm just like most people who are successful they get on with other people it's like a part of success thanks to his poor behavior jose found himself kicked out of two different elementary schools and off at least one swimming team he was also a mischievous little scamp who set fire to at least one country club holy <laughs> what a mischievous little scab. Also known as multiple times arsonist. It was alleged that he burned down the country club his family were members of in 1959, though this does not appear to be proven. As far as I can tell, there was never any official cause of that fire, but he did definitely set fire to a different country club that his family didn't attend. The fire for which he was definitely responsible was in 1954, when he was only 10 years old. Oh my lord. 
Even if Jose did set only one of the two fires, he never received any discipline or punishment for that behavior. His parents paid $10,000 in damages, roughly $115,000 today, and that was the end of it. But there was allegedly more epically bad parenting going on in the Menendez household beyond just a lack of discipline. According to Jose's older sister, Marta, their mother began sexually abusing Jose when he was a toddler. Holy shit. She alleged that this behavior continued throughout his entire time in Cuba. Oh my god. Luckily for Jose, his stay in Cuba would be cut much shorter than expected. By the time he was a teenager, he had been fully conditioned to believe that he was better than everybody else and that his actions didn't have consequences. Oh, I hate these people. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this guy just sounds like a complete douchebag. You sometimes meet these people in your life, and you're like, oh, douchebag. <laughs> and it's like, then I, I don't know any of these people because you meet them once and you're like, yeah, we're not going to hang out again, are we? <laughs> you clown. Combine this with the fact that even a relatively well behaved teenager is typically a loudmouth little sh who thinks they know better than all the adults around them, and it can create a real recipe for disaster. Especially since the thing Jose felt that everybody around him needed uh, was to know how much Fidel Castro sucked. All of a sudden, being part of a wealthy and prominent family wasn't so much a good thing anymore. Jose's anti-Castro speech represented a danger not only to himself, but to his whole family. And it was a little too late to try and teach him to behave. For his own safety, Jose's parents sent him to America with his sister's fiancé. His parents stayed behind to try and protect their property, but it was no use. Castro was intent on seizing property and assets from the wealthy and from corporations to build a more equitable society. And eventually, the rest of the Menendez family fled Cuba and moved to Pennsylvania. Yeah, that would suck. Can you imagine it? I, I don't know, I just imagine this. It's like, oh yeah, now we're communists again. <laughs> All that stuff is now ours. I'd be like, oh for fuck's sake, I worked hard for that stuff. <laughs> Why? I would also leave. <laughs> It'd be like, okay, well, I'm gonna leave. That's it. I'm gonna take all my shit with me, thank you, as well as much as I can before you seize it. Oh my god, I guess, but the most valuable shit I own is property. <laughs> and they'd definitely be like, well, you're not taking that with you, are you, fact boy? The family essentially had to rebuild from scratch, which put a dampener on Jose's dreams. He had been training to be an Olympic swimmer and had always dreamed of going to an Ivy League school, but his family was now basically broke. On the bright side, Jose was extremely intelligent. He came to America without speaking or understanding any English, but he was able to quickly pick up the language once he was enrolled in high school. And while his family could no longer afford world-class trainers, it's not like he had forgotten how to swim. Jose joined his high school swim team and his abilities earned him a full athletic scholarship to Southern Illinois University. It was hardly Ivy League, but his family didn't have Ivy League money anyway. And it's not like it was the worst school in the country. SIU is currently ranked 263 out of 443 national universities, and they have received such accolades as being named a top 10 military-friendly school among tier 2 research institutions. That's extremely specific. It sounds just very middle of the pack, like 263 out of 443 is fine. It's fine as a middle-of-the-road university. Most importantly, it would be free so long as he competed on the school's swim team, so the price was right. Yeah, take what you can get. I don't think this is bad. It's like, yo, so your family. Like, while I think, you know, <laughs> parents didn't do a very good job, especially if the allegations about the mother are true. In that case, you did a horrible job. But it's like, yeah, okay, you basically had all your shit seized because of fucking Castro, and then you fled to America, and then you get into like, I mean, if you got into an Ivy League school, this would be like an insane journey of like impressiveness. This is This is still impressive because of the situation that you've come from. Hello Kitty. 
Jose decided to follow in his father's footsteps by studying accounting in college. He also got a job on the campus television station, which, but what really caught his attention was a senior by the name of Mary Louise Anderson, better known as Kitty. Kitty was born in Oaklawn, Illinois in 1941, making her almost three years older than Jose. She was the youngest of four children, though her upbringing wasn't as privileged as Jose's had been. Her father was an army veteran who opened his own air conditioning and heating business, and he was able to provide a reasonably comfortable middle-class life for his family. Though not as wealthy as the Menendez family, they were no less dysfunctional. Kitty's father was physically abusive to his wife and children, and the abuse caused his mother to suffer from chronic depression. Shortly after Kitty started elementary school, her father took off with his mistress, divorcing her mother and leaving her to raise the four children by herself. Great guy right there. Great fathering. Fathering. <laughs> Great parenting. That's honestly probably better than if he didn't leave. Oh, okay. Oh, wait, yeah, I totally ignored. <laughs> Sometimes I just skip over lines in my mind and then I'm like, wait, why is Kevin saying that? And it's because I totally skipped over the part where he's physically abusive to his wife and children. And, I'm like, and then I'm like, oh yeah, great parenting because he left. And it's like, no, actually, he, it's better that he left. Kevin's completely right. I just glossed over it because I was probably thinking about cake or something. But by that point, the psychological damage had already been done. Even worse, it drove Kitty's mother to alcoholism as a way to cope with the depression and rejection. She also had to take a job at a local airport working for United Airlines so that she could provide for the family. The whole ordeal caused Kitty to suffer from depression growing up as well, and she had trouble making friends at school. When she was 10 years old, she was sent to boarding school for a year. It's rumored that this was a protective measure, and she was sent to the boarding school after being sexually abused by a relative. Um, what? <laughs> if... If I found, if something like that happened in my family, I'd be like, well, we're not seeing that relative ever again, are we? Because that's how it fucking works. Though I can't find any more specific details or allegations about that. Okay, so it's just hearsay, a possibility. Whatever the reason, she only attended school. <laughs> a running joke that I have with my wife is like, we're, we, she's Czech, I, and we raise our kids in, in Prague. In my, a running joke is that I have is that when they're teenagers, they're going to send them to boarding school in the UK. <laughs> For like a year or something. It started like it's it's a bit of a joke, but I also think it would be good for them. Like, I don't know, I went to I didn't board, but I went to a boarding school. And I don't know, I think like it's good for like kids' independence and stuff. And my wife's like, absolutely no shot. <laughs> You're not sending our kids to boarding school in another country. You're not sending our kids to boarding school at all. I'm like, okay, okay. Just saying, like, when they become angry teenagers, maybe you'll change your tune. <laughs> Probably won't though. Whatever the reason, she only attended for a single year before returning to public schools, graduating from high school in 1959 before attending SIU. It's often mentioned that Kitty was a beauty queen, which is technically true. While it's refreshing to finally write the words beauty queen in a true crime script without having to precede them with the word child, I think this detail is often overblown. In her senior year of high school, she competed and won the title of Miss Oak Lawn, a town with a population of about 30,000 at the time. So in a mediumish sized town, she was basically voted the prettiest girl in school. That felt like entering the competition, which also required getting sponsored by a local business. That's still not nothing, and it's one more beauty pageant than I'd ever win, but she didn't grow up training for the pageant circuit or anything like that. It's hopeless. There's nothing to it. Give me those heels. Heel, toe. Heel toe, heel toe. Hmm. Do you really think I can win? Hey, I'm starting to think I can win. It was a one-time thing, so I'm not sure why that aspect of her life is played up so much. Probably because it's recycled many times in various different videos and articles about her, and people are like, ooh, beauty queen. That sounds like, it just sounds good. And we'll just shut it down. 
<laughs> I was like, no, no, it's not really what happened. Regardless, following high school, she attended SIU to study communications and broadcasting. In the broadcasting department, she learned how to produce dramas for both radio and television, and it was likely there, while working on campus TV shows, that she first met Jose. The two instantly fell in love, and they became completely inseparable. Unfortunately for the young lovers, neither family approved of their relationship. There's a good chance that Kitty's parents would have disapproved of her dating a man three years her junior had they not been far too busy disapproving of her dating somebody so Cuban. Oh, <laughs> hello. Isn't it? Isn't Pennsylvania like? Isn't that in the? Like, I don't want to like broad paint America with broad strokes, but aren't people in? That's in the Northeast, right? Aren't they all like super liberal? I mean, I guess not. But like, wait, is Pennsylvania one of those Northeast states? <laughs> nothing it could be like next to like montana or something oh jesus and not that everybody who lives in a liberal state is like just not a racist or anything like that but you know it's still like so oh my jose wasn't even second or third generation american he was an immigrant practically fresh off the boat where the couple met oh God, how awful. Such a man was deemed entirely unacceptable for Gitty to date. As for the Menendez family, their objections were classist rather than racist. They had been a part of Cuba's elite. How could Jose have chosen to date someone so middle class? She wasn't even upper middle class. She was just regular middle class. <laughs> Basically a peasant. It's weird how, like, classes... Classism is not as bad as racism. Right? <laughs> is that... That'll, do you think that'll change? No, that won't change. I don't know. This is hot topic territory, isn't it? Uh, hot water territory. But like, that's like not as bad as being racist in my eyes. Not only that, but her parents had gotten divorced. Jose's family believed that Kitty couldn't have had the same sort of family values that were important to them. Ironically, had they gotten to know Kitty instead of dismissing her outright, they would have realized that the two things she hated most in the world were her father and the concept of divorce. She had grown up experiencing the effects that divorce can have on women and children, and she would be loath to ever take part in one herself. Again, she was still probably better off than she would have been living with an abusive father for another decade or more, but the divorce did take an emotional and financial toll on her family. Yeah, it's interesting you see these dynamics of like uh, how someone's parents relationship passes on to them and how like people with divorced parents might not want to get divorced themselves even though it's for the best i don't think anyone wants to get divorced though do they i don't know it's interesting i don't know i just see friends and like you, it's interesting to hear like their stories of their families and then see how it played out in their own lives now as we all get older <laughs> But even if the Menendez family had known how she felt about divorce, she was still too poor and Jose was still too Cuban for either family to ever approve of their relationship. This left Jose and Kitty with only one sensible option. They continued to date throughout Kitty's senior year. Then as soon as they graduated, Jose dropped out of school, abandoning his scholarship, and the pair eloped to New York City. Kitty had dreamed of producing radio and TV professionally, so New York seemed like the place to be. But reality was going to come crashing down on her as she had to put her dreams on hold. Jose was able to enroll at Queen's College to continue his accounting degree while working part-time at night as a dishwasher. In order to support the family, Kitty had to abandon her dreams of pursuing a master's degree and got a full-time job as an elementary school teacher. By 1967, Jose had graduated college and become a certified public accountant. He wasted no time making use of his education, and immediately out of college, he began working for the accounting firm Coopers & Librands, better known today as PricewaterhouseCoopers. I've heard of that one, BWC got friends who worked at PwC. When Jose and Kitty got married, he promised that they were going to be partners and everything. They ran a team, and together they would accomplish all of their dreams. He'd accomplished his dream of becoming a CPA and landed a pretty sweet job thanks to Kitty's sacrifice, and now he was making enough money to easily support them as she probably thought it was going to be her time to resume chasing her dream of a career in broadcasting. 
Potose knew just how to clip the wings off that dream, and on January 10, 1968, roughly nine months after Jose graduated from college, Kitty gave birth to their first son, Joseph Lyle Menendez, who everybody just called Lyle. She quit her job as a teacher to become a full-time mom, and just under three years later, she would have her second son, Eric Galen Menendez, and Kitty would definitely not resent them both for crushing her dreams. Um, well, are you just taking away all of her autonomy there? It seems like she also... <laughs> It's not, it wasn't exclusively Jose's decision to have children, I'm assuming. We'll come back to the boys later, but first Jose had to cook some books and become CFO of a porn company. Okay, let's go! A Meteoric Rise Jose continued his work for Coopers and Librand for a few years, but in 1969, he was sent to Chicago to perform an audit on Lion Container, one of the company's clients. Lion was impressed with Jose's work, very impressed. They immediately offered him a job as the company's comptroller, which he accepted. He, Kitty, what is a comptroller? Look up. Comptroller, a management-level position responsible for the supervising of the quality of accounting and financial reporting of an organization. A financial controller is a senior-level executive. Is that like some old-school word? That just sounds like a CFO. Like someone who overlooks finances. Right? <laughs> it's not terrible at business. I just stare at my desk, but it looks like I'm working. But I'd say in a given week, I probably only do about 15 minutes of real, actual work. He, Kitty, and the newborn Lyle moved... Wait, this is so confusing. <laughs> there's Cooper and Lybrand, there's Lion Container, and there's Lyle. <laughs> oh, it's not making it easy, is it, your life? He, Kitty, and the newborn Lyle moved to Hinsdale, Illinois, so that Jose could work for the company. It didn't take long for his financial decisions to turn the company around and make them profitable. Oh my, that's impressive. You're just, I mean, you're just an accountant. I don't want to say just an accountant. Accountants are great. But like, Oh, I guess accountants can do that sort of stuff. They'd be like, well, you shouldn't be spending money on this. You should be doing that. I'd be like, okay, that's, this is cool. And in 1970, he was named president of Lion Container. Oh my God, that is a hell of a rise. As a reminder, he had graduated college less than four years earlier. But this new position wasn't going to last very long. Jose and the chairman of the board had a pretty severe differing of opinions on what direction they should take the company in. Jose left the company and took an executive position at the rental car company Hertz. This new career path put the family back on the East Coast, this time in New Jersey. It sounds like this guy's got a hell of a career going on. Things continued to go well for the young corporate executive, and in 1973, he was named the CFO of Hertz. However, oh my god, that's a huge job. When was this guy born? 1944. This guy is the CFO of Hertz at 29. What? That's insane. Now, we had a chance to meet this young man, and boy, that's just a straight shooter with upper management written all over him. Ooh. However, it was here that he would begin to gain a less than stellar reputation. Other executives loved him because he made them money, but everybody that had to work under Jose absolutely despised him. He was known for abusing his subordinates and firing people at the drop of a hat. If he was displeased with someone, Jose might loudly berate them by asking them how they could be so fucking stupid. He would then go around the room and ask everybody else if they were as fucking stupid as the other guy was. <laughs> Have you guys seen that TV show Entourage? He sounds like Ari Gold. <laughs> Oh my god, it's so good in TV, but in real life, it must be a nightmare. That's a stupid idea. You're fucking stupid. Yo, John, are you as stupid as this motherfucker? Are you, John?
That is what we call a bitch slap. A bitch slap for a bitch. There was also a lot of sexual impropriety, with Jose having numerous affairs with co-workers, not all of which were merely flings. And if you're the CFO, those co-workers are going to... I guess this was the 1970s, so that's a little bit different. But don't be having affairs with people who work for you. <laughs> it's a bad idea. In 1978, he began an affair with a woman named Louise, who was basically his second wife. They would travel together for work all the time, which gave them ample opportunity for their secret relationship, or at least secret from Kitty. Louise lived in Manhattan, and the two would frequently stay at her townhouse together, presenting themselves as a couple while entertaining guests. It's safe to assume that few, if any, of the guests at their dinner parties had any idea that Jose was married to somebody else. Despite his reputation as being just the fucking worst person in the world to work for, Jose also had a reputation as a ruthless businessman and aggressive negotiator. Yeah, this, uh, honestly, like, yeah, he sounds like a bit of a douchebag, but, and uh, I, we know, like, he's been a douchebag his whole life, it seems, but he seems he's a very competent and aggressive and cutthroat businessman. And he's about to enter the 80s. It's about to be <laughs> good, good times for him. It's because of this that in 1979, the president of Hertz promoted Jose to the role of global general manager. 1979, 1973. He's in his 30s. He's in his early 30s or mid 30s. That's madness. But the following year, that's my age. Can you imagine being the global general manager of Hertz at my age? What the f I'd be like, how did I get here? And what am I doing? <laughs> I am not competent enough to be in this position. I'm definitely not old enough. I don't have enough experience. Why did you promote me? But the following year, Hertz would bring in a new president. Maybe he didn't want a global GM with such a negative reputation, a reputation that would follow Jose around for the rest of his professional life. Or maybe the president just wanted to change things for the sake of change. Having worked for a massive corporation that went through like five different presidents in three years, I can assure you that every new company president makes tons of needless changes in an attempt to justify being given the position. Yeah, yeah, big companies, it's so confusing. Or maybe Hertz was doing just fine, so they didn't need Jose cutting costs and shaking things up anymore. Whatever the reason, Jose's time at Hertz had come to an end. But he wasn't being fired, he was just being reassigned. At the time, Hertz was actually a subsidiary of RCA, and Jose was being transferred to the somewhat floundering RCA Records. Undeterred by this sudden career change, Jose was determined to turn the company around or commit ethics violations <laughs> trying. It was around this time that Kitty first learned of Jose's infidelity. She didn't know about Louise and the long-term relationship he was engaged in, just that he had been sleeping with other women. Infuriated, she left the home for several days, but eventually Jose was able to convince her to return, which honestly probably wasn't that hard. Rather than trying to convince Kitty how much he loved her and regretted his decision, he focused on their sons. Kitty hadn't spoken to her father since she was a child and had no desire to. Jose would have known that she wouldn't want to put Lyle and Eric through the same pain that she had suffered, and he, was con and he convinced her to come back for the sake of the boys. While the plan worked, it wasn't without its consequences. It sent Kitty into a brutal depression that would only get worse years later when she uncovered the full extent of his cheating. Yeah, what a surprise. You act like a piece of shit, then you manipulate your wife, and then she gets a bit depressed about it. A lot depressed about it. What a shocking turn of events, Jose. But that was future Jose's problem. For now, he had to turn around RCA Records, just like he'd done with the previous companies he worked for. He was able to make some big moves for RCA, signing the bands Duran Duran, the Arrhythmics, and Puerto Rican boy bands Menundo, the bands that would be the jumping-off point for Ricky Martin. Oh my god, I've heard of all of these people. So that's a big deal. This guy's incredible at business. It was a good start, but signing a few bands wasn't going to be enough. RCA was encumbered by long-term contracts they'd signed with aging stars that were waning in popularity contracts they had offered far too much money for. The company needed to fix its bottom line, and CPA Jose, of course, knew the easiest way for, the, for them to do that was to sell more records. 
big brain. That's what a record company does. You might think that sounds easier said than done, but since Jose was completely lacking in ethics, it was actually really simple. Is it a public company? Are they just going to like buy their own records or have like another subsidiary buy tons of records to make it look like they're super successful and then they'll jack up the share price? Or something like that. <laughs> He would just ship record stores massive quantities of shit that they didn't order. By moving huge volumes of albums, they could make it appear like they were selling way more than they actually were. It was a foolproof pan, except for one minor detail. If I owned a record store and ordered a case of the new Kenny Rogers album only to have RCA charge me for and deliver an entire pallet, I'd immediately call up my sales rep and kindly tell them to get fucked. And that's exactly what happened. Most stores weren't going to just stop carrying records from RCA altogether, although I certainly would have, but they were absolutely going to make them come and take their stuff back. Yeah, it'd be like, bro, you sent me more than I wanted. It's like, ah, it sounds like your problem, actually. That sounds like MasterCard's problem because I'm going to charge your ass back. Jose's plan may have initially made it seem like sales were through the roof, but they were forced to take back as much as $25 million in returned albums each year, which is $70 million today. I'd assume that they were eating the shipping costs and all of those returns, so it was just an all-around disaster. But I guess RCA liked the cut of Jose's jib. Sure, this particular plan may not have worked, but it demonstrated his complete lack of ethics and dedication to doing anything to make the company money. Yeah, but it's not working. Or is it like enough people just don't send it back and then, oh yeah, fine, we'll sell them. And so it covers the costs or not? This sounds like insane. Like, it just doesn't sound like a good idea at all. That's exactly the type of attitude that they were looking for in a new executive vice president and COO of worldwide operations. And by 1985, just four years after being transferred from Hertz to RCA, that's exactly the position Jose was promoted to. However, just like his previous promotion at Hertz, this was going to be short-lived as well. Despite his best efforts, Jose simply wasn't able to turn RCA records around, but he was a also growing tired of the music industry. He wanted to return his attention towards the movie industry instead. Thanks to some contracts he'd made at Carol Co. Pictures, this dream was actually going to be made possible. Carol Co. was an independent film company that had just struck it big with the release of the first two Rambo movies. Thanks to their newfound success, they began talks with Noel Bloom's NCB Entertainment to purchase international video entertainment. IV was originally a subsidiary of Caballero Home, Caballero Home Video, a company specializing in porno films. Oh, right, yes. He's going to be, okay, I forgot about this little step. The whole timeline of these companies gets a bit confusing, but NCB had two main subsidiaries. Family, I'm already confused. There's too many companies. And he's worked in too many places and they're doing too many things. Family Home Entertainment, which released family-friendly movies, and IVE, which released the other kinds. <laughs> it's different, isn't it? So what do you do? Well, we make pornography and kids' films. Definitely separately. <laughs> Definitely separately. Don't get any ideas. <laughs> this guy with his lack of ethics. You know what we could sell? Let's make some money on the dark web. You f***ing sicko. Family home... <laughs> Sorry, just to be absolutely clear, that was a joke. There's no suggesting that happens at all. Just a joke. And a tasteless joke at that. It took almost a year of negotiations and red tape, but in 1987, the deal finally went through. Thanks to connections made through RCA, Carolco bought brought in Jose to be the head of IVE and turn around the failing movie company. But this meant that his family had to move to California. Kitty wasn't happy about the move, or Jose in general. When Jose's time was winding down at RCA, Kitty learned about Louise. When she confronted her husband about the nearly decade-long affair, he came clean about all of his acts of infidelity. This absolutely destroyed Kitty. She had given up pursuing her dream career to live with this man and raise their children. And this was how he repaid her. 
She had struggled with depression for most of her life, but this mess sent Kitty spiraling. Not only was Jose cheating on her, but now let's move to the opposite side of the country. She had spent years building a network of friends so that they could have some sort of life for her outside of being a housewife, and the family had just purchased her dream home in Princeton, New Jersey. Kitty began to openly discuss ending her own life. On at least, and on at least one occasion, she tried to do so by overdosing on Xanax. But the move was happening whether she liked it or not. So they packed their bags and headed to Calabasas, California, so Jose could become a big-time movie executive. And he absolutely was. When Carol Co. purchased IVE, the company was losing millions of dollars. In his first year as head of the company, Jose was able to increase profits by $8 million and double that the following year. Oh my god, again, I'll just state this guy's a wildly good, if unethical, businessman. Thanks to his ability to turn the company around in 1988, he was able to merge with IVE Lieberman Enterprises, a wholesale distributor. The newly formed company was called Live Entertainment, and it was immediately successful. The somewhat convoluted jumble of movie companies that we've discussed would eventually go on to be Artisan Entertainment, before being purchased by Lionsgate. Not that Jose was going to live to see any of that success. A year after he founded Live Entertainment, he and Kitty were killed by their sons in their Beverly Hills mansion. Oh yeah. This is casual criminalist, not like some random dude's business career. <laughs> well, this guy sounds like he sounds like such a douchebag. If someone was like making enemies and getting killed, I feel like it would be this guy, wouldn't it? Oh, he's the victim, but he just sounds like such a dick. Setting expectations. Jose was a successful and ruthless businessman, constantly having to travel for work, so you probably assume that he didn't have time to do any real parenting and left that all to Kitty. Unfortunately, that was far from the case. Jose had big dreams and expected nothing but the best from his sons. They would spend their entire childhoods under intense pressure to be the absolute best, and it started before they were even in school. Every moment of every day was planned out for the boys, what they would eat, who they could talk to, what they could read, and basically what they could think, all were determined by Jose. While both boys were subjected to similar treatment, far more pressure was placed on Lyle. As the firstborn son, it was going to be his responsibility to carry on the family legacy. That meant that he had to be absolutely perfect, and he had to succeed even when Jose had failed. And considering what a successful career Jose had and how quickly it had taken off, there were only a couple of things that he was really ashamed of. One of these was his degree from Queen's College. It had been as a dream to attend an Ivy League school, but when he came to America, his family couldn't afford it. Now that he'd earned enough money to send his kid to any college in the world, there's no way in hell he was going to allow them to settle for anything less than an Ivy League education. This is like, you gotta chill, bro. Like, I want my kids to be successful. And like, all of this stuff, I'm like, yeah, in my mind, I'm like, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. But I also don't want to pressure them in any way. It's like, if you you just do what you want to do, just enjoy it. Like, just just try and figure it out. You'll be fine. Like, that's what I want. I just want them to be happy and satisfied. It's like, if, you, if they're the best issue, you'd be like, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. But I never want to put that pressure on them. I just want them to be happy. And like, that's all I want. That's all I want. Once you're a couple of years removed from college, it's unlikely that anybody new you meet will ever know or care where you went to school, unless you're that obnoxious arsehole that drops the fact that you went to Harvard into every conversation. Despite this, not attending an Ivy had haunted Jose, so his sons needed to do what he had not. Yeah, no one cares. Like, once you leave, you <laughs> I don't even remember, like, the last time I brought up I guess it's because I don't really use my education. But like, I can't remember the last time I even brought that up in a conversation with anyone. <laughs> it was so long ago, and no one cares. It's, it all seems so important at the time, doesn't it? Like, all the grades and all of this, and applications for jobs and all of that stuff. How important it seemed, and how pointless it seems in retrospect. 
Now, silly. But the other thing Jose was ashamed of was his Cuban heritage, or at the very least, that's how it's always framed. I'm not convinced he was ashamed of being specifically Cuban per se, more that he was ashamed of being seen as a Cuban immigrant rather than an American. Then again, he had to leave Cuba because he wouldn't shut up about how much he hated Castro, so maybe I'm wrong on that one. Anyway, when Jose received recognition on his success as a Hispanic businessman, he took it as an insult. And while he took particular pleasure in abusing and humiliating his white subordinates in particular, he still wanted them to see him as their douchebag American boss rather than their douchebag Cuban boss. Jose even requested that his work colleagues call him Joe rather than Jose. I mean, fair play on that one, to be honest. If someone was like, look, I'm not Hispanic, but if someone was like, yeah, 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 you're a great Hispanic businessman, it'd be like, bro, no, I'm just a great businessman. Can't we recognize that? Do you have to be, do you have to have that qualifier in there? And honestly, he kind of is. He absolutely is. His business track record is actually incredible. That's why Lyle was given the name he was. Jose's father was named Jose and his father was named Jose. And I'm not sure how far back that goes, but Lyle was given the first name Joseph instead. Of course, there's no specific parenting choices that Jose could make that would somehow make his sons not be half Cuban, but his deep-seated insecurity over his own ethnicity helped fuel the overall brutal and domineering upbringing to ensure that his sons fit in as Americans. Regardless of his motivations for doing so, Jose was intent on bringing up his sons to be miniature versions of himself. He wanted to create a Kennedy-like dynasty, so these boys were going to learn how to live up to expectations from birth. However, his methods and teachings were questionable at best. For example, when they were little, Jose would have his son sit on the edge of a wall and jump off into his arms. That doesn't sound so strange, and he would repeat this process a couple of times, catching the boys and placing them back on the wall. But the third time, they would jump, and Jose would step back, letting them fall to the ground and hurt themselves. That is psycho, my dude. What are you doing? It was probably meant to be a lesson in self-reliance and not trusting others or some bullshit, but it just seems like a mean thing to do little kids. Yes, that's exactly what it is. And if you're doing that, stop doing that, and instead, catch them and look after them and then twirl them around or something and they'll love it. They'll have that big kid smile on their face. One, two, three. Ali, can I have a word? Sure. They were also taught from a young age that success and winning was everything. <laughs> See, there's some things that... <laughs> there's some things that appeal to, like, that part of me. The part of, like, I'm pretty success-driven. Like, I'm not gonna lie. Like, I like being successful and, like, working on things and getting more successful. It's, like a big part of like my personality and i agree with that but also let's not be a douchebag about it okay lyle and eric had to be the best in everything they did no matter what and it didn't matter how they achieved their goals the ends justified the means and other people were just tools for them to reach their own personal success once the boys entered elementary school, it was time to make sure they were educated about the world. They'd eat dinner together as a family, and Jose would ask complex questions about current events. They were mainly directed at Lyle, though occasionally Eric was allowed to answer. At a very fundamental level, Jose didn't seem to understand in any way that he was raising literal children. All of the pressure put on the brothers to excel at everything took a tremendous toll on them. They both developed stutters, ground their teeth, suffered from stomach pains, and developed awful tempers. Since Lyle was under extra pressure from his father, he developed an extra symptom from all of that stress, which we'll get to shortly. Ooh, what could that be? So, where was Kitty during all of this? Well, she was there. She just didn't really give a shit. While Jose was a strict authoritarian, Kitty was a much more permissive parent. Permissive was her own word of choice, and it was a style of parenting that had been gaining popularity in the late 60s and 70s thanks to some early research on different parenting styles. Of course, the existence of any such trends or research was likely just a convenient excuse for Kitty to ignore her children. <laughs> what do you say? I subscribe to the branch of laissez-faire parenting. I just let them do what they want. <laughs> Whatever they want. It's like, what's that? Um... 
There's the, the, the school where you let your kids run around or like uh, you just let them. Montessori, where they just do whatever they want. And it's like, I, I'm not for like letting my kids do what they want because I don't want to be like an authoritarian. But it's like, if they're screaming around a coffee shop while everyone's just trying to have a coffee, I'll be like, shh, quiet. Don't do that. This is not the place. This is not the time. If you want to go outside and run around, we can. But later. It's a balance, isn't it? She never wanted to be a housewife. She wanted a career in broadcasting. Lion and Eric had ruined that dream for her, so what little attention she paid to them was in the form of verbal and physical abuse. Their existence had taken away her purpose in life, and she made sure that they knew it, repeatedly telling them for a young from a young age that it was their fault that she never got to have her career. These feelings weren't just a family secret. She would tell other people as well that the boys ruined her life, and she wished, wished she had never had children. Oh my god, you guys are fucking up your kids something intense. Kitty was described by many as being a cruel parent, and she was neglectful. For instance, she and her sister-in-law, Marta, took Lyle and Eric to a mall once when they were still little. All of a sudden, Kitty and Marta turned around and the boys had vanished. They had absolutely no idea where the kids had run off to, but Kitty was wholly unconcerned with their whereabouts. A few minutes later, a voice came over the loudspeaker, paging Mrs. Menendez and saying that they had found her children. She was thrilled, not because she'd been worried sick over their disappearance, but because she now knew exactly where they were. Lyle and Eric were with store security waiting to be retrieved, which meant that she could keep shopping in peace. She left her sons at the security office for 45 minutes while she continued shopping. The boys struggled as they grew up, and the two became very close. They had other friends, but they were each other's best friends. Living in a house with two abusive parents, they were naturally drawn to one another for comfort. Eric also worshipped Lyle. Not only was he Eric's big brother, but he was like a miniature version of their father, except this version was kind and accepting of him. Eric was vocal with his other friends about how much he admired his older brother, which they tended to find confusing. The two boys had extremely different personalities, with Lyle taking after their father and Eric taking after their mother. But while he may have worshipped his older brother, Eric was also living in Lyle's shadow. In preparation for ensuring that they get into an Ivy League school, Jose and Kitty had enrolled the boys in the prestigious Princeton Day School. Since Lyle was a few years older and thus multiple grades ahead, Eric was always compared to his older brother by teachers and students alike. Of course, Lyle was setting an impossible bar to clear. Despite the expectations set by Jose that they should be perfect in every way, Lyle was only able to achieve average grades. He also had severe difficulty concentrating, and teachers believed that both he and Eric must have a learning disability. Jose, of course, wasn't willing to listen to such nonsense. They were his sons, so it was unthinkable to suggest that, they, that there could be something wrong with them. They just clearly weren't working hard enough. But at least in Eric's case, the teachers were correct. While I can't find any diagnosis for Lyle, Eric had, was eventually diagnosed as suffering from dyslexia and auditory processing disorder. APD is a disorder in which the ears and the brain essentially don't cooperate properly. It doesn't cause any sort of hearing impairment, but the brain has difficulty understanding and differentiating exactly what it's hearing, especially when it comes to speech. Having either of these conditions can make schoolwork difficult, so I can only imagine that dealing with both must have been a nightmare. It's unclear exactly when Jose and Kitty found out that Eric had these conditions, but they never informed the schools because they felt it would have been an embarrassment. Despite neither child particularly excelling in the classroom, teachers did quickly notice that their homework was of a much higher caliber than the work they did in school. Obviously, that's because they weren't doing their own homework. Oh, <laughs> at first I was like, well, maybe school's really loud and it's that auditory thing. It's like, no, 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 they're just doing the homework for them. Kitty would often do their homework for them, probably because it was easier than actually trying to help them. Teachers also noticed that both boys were immature for their age, as if their social development had been stunted. I wonder why that was. Maybe it's because your parents are being pieces of shit. Now, wait a minute. Jose was trying to train his sons as if they were adults, so shouldn't they have been overly mature? Eh, I don't think it works like that, does it? 
Ignoring the fact that this doesn't, it doesn't really work like that, okay? <laughs> Kevin and I, same page. There's one specific incident that it's believed may have severely hindered Lyle's development in particular. It was the last day of second grade at Princeton Day School. The classroom had multiple pets, but the animals couldn't stay at school over the summer. Instead, they were given away to whichever children volunteered to take them. Admittedly, this is really stupid idea. I didn't go to a fancy private school, so our classrooms never had pets. But even if they had, I can't imagine a teacher asking a bunch of seven-year-olds who wants to bring these living creatures back to the house without getting parental approval first. Surely they had to get parental approval. Like, if a kid just random, if my kids randomly showed up from school being like, oh yeah, this is Trevor the Frog, we've got to look after him for the summer, I'd be like, I'd phone the school and be like, you think that's okay? <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> you need to ask first. And to my kid, I'd be like, absolutely, we'd love to take care of Trevor. <laughs> Because two faces for different, <laughs> like one for children, one for adults. Adults, like what the fuck? Kids, brilliant. <laughs> La volunteered to take home the rabbits and he was very excited about it. He had occasionally brought home other animals he found outside to keep his pets. And as far as I can tell, it always went fine. When he brought the rabbit home, he showed it to his mother who liked it at first and then put it in an aquarium he had that was empty at the time. Later that day, Kitty told La that his father said that he had to get rid of it. But he didn't want to get rid of it. He put it off for a couple of days, hoping that Jose would change his mind and let him keep the rabbit. Unfortunately, a couple of days later, the, be later the belly was no longer in its aquarium. He asked his father where it was, and Jose reminded Lyle that he was told to get rid of it. When Lyle pushed the issue of what happened, he was informed that the rabbit was in the garbage. Bro. He looked inside the garbage can and saw the body of the rabbit with flies buzzing around it. That is totally going to fuck your kids. Jesus. Allegedly, both Jose and Kitty had bashed its head in before throwing it away. They could have just released it outside or given it to another family, but Lyle had to be taught a lesson. That is an extremely traumatic experience, and it is believed by many that this particular incident was a major, major cause in Lyle continuing to wet his bed and play with stuffed animals until he was 14. Holy shit. That is really twisted guys even brought a stuffed rabbit with him to school for a class photo when he was far too old for it to be considered cute instead of weird now jose had not only been successful in the business world but he was a successful athlete as well as athleticism was what got him a scholarship to siu and his boys were going to be little athletes as well as they were getting older jose told them that they each had to pick a sport which they would master but most importantly it shouldn't be a team sport Joining a team would have allowed the coach and teammates to challenge the unquestioned authority Jose had over his sons. Not only that, but their individual brilliance and skill might not be properly showcased if they were expected to be team players. These boys were destined to be superstars, and no team was going to be allowed to hold them back. When La was 12 and Eric was 9, they decided that tennis was going to be their sport. And once the decision was made, Jose made sure that they practiced every single day. It didn't matter if it was their birthdays, Christmas, or St. Swithin's Day. Don't know that one. And they actually got quite good at it, especially Eric. He had the advantage of starting at a younger age, but in high school he was ranked 44th in the US for men under 18. That's pretty remarkable. But again, there are consequences to placing that much pressure on your children. And since Lyle was under extra pressure by being the oldest, he had extra consequences. By the time he was 14, Lyle was already going bald. Oh my god, that is really young. Like, I thought I went bald. I started going bald at like mid-20s, early 20s. It's definitely fully bald by my mid to late 20s. But 14's very young. Baldness usually starts to happen relatively early in a man's life, so I'm now nah, so I'm glad I managed to dodge that bullet. Oh, okay, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, you are. Well, you wait a few years. No, you'll probably be fine. I don't know. You're a little bit older than me, right? And I think... Isn't there a stat like most men of some age are bald? Or like, it, it happens. For me... I'm going to stop talking about baldness. I just sound like super bitter. <laughs> I'm not jealous at all, Kevin. 
<laughs> not jealous of your glorious hair. Oh, your highness, I'm sure it's not that noticeable. Bald! 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 But early in this context is early 20s or even late teens. There's a good chance you knew someone who was starting to go bald by the end of their senior year of high school. Wasn't actually me. I was not going bald then. I had a glorious head of hair. But to start losing your hair as a freshman basically either means malnutrition, chemotherapy, or ungodly levels of stress. And this was extremely upsetting to Jose, not because he felt his parenting might be to blame for Lars' premature baldness, but because it was just one more way that his son was failing to achieve the standards of perfection that he had clearly laid out. Lars was forced to wear a toupee to conceal his hair loss. No, that's worse. You can't be wearing a toupee. <laughs> The following year, Lyle began dating for the first time. His first girlfriend was Stacy Feldman, the manager of the varsity tennis team, of which Lyle was the number one ranked player. I know the term manager might make it sound like an inappropriate teacher-student relationship, but the manager was a student position. She basically was in charge of handling all of the logistical bullshit that the coaches didn't want to have to deal with. Their first date was to go and see Raiders of the Lost Ark. Going to movies was one of Lyle's greatest joys because it was the only time that he could quietly enjoy something without his parents being in total control. However, some sources claim that he didn't really understand the difference between fiction and reality. This wasn't some major part of the defense for his eventual crimes, but if true, it further illustrates just how stunted his development had been. Anyway, the date went well, and Lyle and Stacy quickly fell in love. They loved spending time together, and would even walk through the halls of Princeton Day School holding hands. Such public displays of affection were strictly against the rules, but the faculty let it slide. Yeah, PDAs. <laughs> we had a little code of conduct book. I think you had to carry around at some point. I think they got a, got rid of that, but it's this little handheld book that you had to carry around and it had all these little rules. And it was like, no PDAs. <laughs> they seemed to all be in agreement that these two kids were probably hopelessly awkward losers and they desperately needed one another. Lyle and Stacy agreed that they needed one another and they began to discuss the possibility of getting married and having children. But Stacy was older than Lyle and she decided to call things off after she graduated and was preparing to go to college. She realized that she was too young to get married and wanted to experience more of the world first. Lyle was hurt and tried to wing her back with expensive presents, but it didn't work. He was heartbroken for a little bit, but eventually got over it without doing anything crazy. Then in 1986, the big day finally came. Lyle was getting ready to finish high school, which meant that he could apply to colleges. Nothing short of an Ivy League would do, and since he'd spent his t life attending Princeton Day School, it only made sense that he should apply to Princeton University. At least, that's what made sense to Jose. If it was up to Lyle, he would have skipped college entirely and taken a loan from his father to open up his own restaurants. That was the dream he'd told friends about. But it wasn't up to Lyle, it never had been. It was Princeton or bust. But his mediocre grades weren't enough to get accepted. This was around the time that Jose was hired by Carol Co., so he, Kitty, and Eric left for Calabasas. Lyle could stay back in New Jersey and attend community college for the year while he tried to get into Princeton for the 1987 school year. During that year, he began dating Jamie Pisarczyk as tennis player and waitress at a local restaurant. They fell deeply in love, but Jose and Kitty didn't approve of this new girl. Jamie was a few years older than Eric and from a middle-class family. Jose also felt that only 19 years old, Lyle was too young to get married. And yes, the irony of the situation was completely lost on Jose and Kitty. Had Lyle been like his, more like his father, he would have done the exact same thing that Jose did at 19 and eloped with the older woman of lower social standing. Wow, it's exact like father-like son, jeez. Instead, he announced their engagement to the family. Oh yes, and he had also been accepted to Princeton for the upcoming school year, but he didn't find that particularly exciting. 
The summer before Lyle was supposed to start school at Princeton, Jamie moved to Alabama. Naturally, Lyle went with her. Not wanting there to be anything to distract Lyle from his studies at the Ivy League school, Jose secretly sponsored Jamie for a European tennis tour. This was supposed to get her out of Lyle's hair, but instead he followed her to Europe. It's unclear whether the tennis tour ended, Lyle chose to return, or he was dragged back, but he did make it back to New Jersey in time to attend his first semester at Princeton. It did not go well. He had never been a particularly good student, and he was accepted on the basis of his ethnicity and tennis school rather than any academic ability. Yeah, this is the problem. If you like, and it's weird that America has this, where you get to go to like a, a better university or whatever because you're good at sports and you get a scholarship. Because, like, if you go to an average school and you're bright, then you're going to do good. But then it, if they go put you in Princeton or whatever, you're with everyone who's extra, extra bright, and at best you're going to be middle of the group. Right, or maybe you're extra brilliant or whatever. But if you're just an average student like this, you go to Princeton, you're not going to have a good time because everyone's going to be super smart and probably smarter than you and harder working than you, and it's not going to be fun. Every weekend, Lyle would fly to California to spend time with his family. But one weekend, he accidentally left his notebook with his Psych 101 lab notes in the airport. Luckily, he had a lab partner, so when he returned to Princeton, he asked if he could borrow his partner's notes to write up the assignment. He'd already missed multiple assignments, so he explained that he couldn't afford to miss another without failing the class. His lab partner agreed, and that should have been a happy ending to the story. Sometimes people lose things or are sick or miss class, so students copy each other's notes all the time. Unfortunately, Lard didn't just use his partner's notes to assist him in writing the assignment, he basically just copied the notes and turned them in as his assignment. The two papers were so similar that Lard was accused of plagiarism and brought before the school's disciplinary committee. Yet, yeah, not a big surprise there, is there really? Jose did his best to shield Lyle from any responsibility for his actions, but it didn't work. After a four-hour hearing and an hour of deliberation, oh my god, that's so long. <laughs> what? Lyle was found guilty of plagiarism and suspended from Princeton for a year. Jose immediately flew out to Princeton to meet with the school's president to demand a lenient sentence, possibly by opening his checkbook, as was his solution to most problems, but the president wasn't interested. Good. Don't be accepting those, like, not bribes. They're like, what should we call them? Incentives? Don't be doing that. Jose was wealthy, but he wasn't by your son's way out of trouble at Princeton wealthy. <laughs> God, I love that. And he's got to have money, right? Like, buy, like, that's the sort of money where it's like, it's got to be millions, right? It's like, okay, so you want that new computer lab? You want that new sports hall? You want that new thing? <laughs> okay, you're going to get a new building. And my son needs to go back into school. <laughs> it's really that fuck you money, isn't it? Love that shit. Lyle could return to school to try again. Not that he actually wanted to, but he would have to wait until the following year. Jose was furious, but not at Lyle. He had basically taught his sons that it was absolutely okay to lie, cheat, and steal their way to success as long as they didn't get caught. Now it was Princeton's presidents that Jose was pissed at. What sort of backwards world had the president grown up in where he thought it was justifiable to hold people accountable for their own actions? <laughs> the pair returned to California, and the whole experience had really given Jose a lot to think about. Had he raised his kids to be spoiled brats? <laughs> had you, Jose? What? Just like yourself? Lyle had chased a girl to Europe and squandered his chance at an Ivy League education. In his mind, the whole point of providing his children with the best and demanding the best from them was to give them a leg up in life. Sure, he was rich and successful, but he had to work hard his whole life to get where he was. I mean, sort of. He was born wealthy, was hired directly out of college by one of the most prestigious accounting firms, and within three years was poached by a client to be their CFO. Well, okay, so being born wealthy, obviously not his doing. But getting hired out of college for a great firm and then getting poached by a client, that's because he worked hard. And like, yeah, mo like obviously had a great start. Like most people, let's say they're starting way back here. He's starting here, but he still got to here. Like 
people who are listening, I'm like moving my hand up my desk. I'm not saying that Jose wasn't capable or didn't work hard, but it feels like one incredible opportunity after another just kind of fell into his lap by sheer dumb luck. Yes, there's some luck involved, but also they're not going to hire him if he's not incredible at what, like when he got poached by that company, it's because they saw he was incredible at his job and they were like, whoa, we want that guy. And then he gets hired. That's his, that's on his merit. It's not just dumb luck. Boy. That's just a straight shooter with upper management written all over him. He really didn't start at the bottom and work his way up to the top after decades of hard work. He basically started near the top, took one step upwards, and then just made a bunch of lateral moves. I disagree. I think he started uh, near the top, or he started high, but he also didn't, because his family got kicked out of Cuba and lost all of their stuff. He just happened to have a good upbringing with the, the swimming and stuff that got him a scholarship to a school. And then from there... It was kind of on him. And sure, I'm sure there's some luck involved, but he also seems to have worked hard for what he, what he got. It's the American dream, Kevin. Come on, I'm sounding like an American. <laughs> sounding more American than you, Kevin. It's the American dream. But he had wanted his sons to start at the absolute top, and he was designing their lives to allow them to achieve that. He was now realizing that the plan hadn't worked, and perhaps he needed to do something about what a rich, spoiled brat Lal was. Jose was going to have to teach Lal the value of a dollar by giving a cushy job at daddy's new company. <laughs> Everybody at IVE hated Lyle, which he blamed on his father. He had already known what an abusive piece of shit Jose was as a father, but he didn't realize what an abusive piece of shit he was as a boss. It didn't take long for him to determine that everybody at IVE despised him because he was their evil boss's son. Except that wasn't actually the case. I mean, he really was the evil boss's son, but and that didn't, definitely didn't help anything, but it's not the main reason people disliked him. Lyle was just a shit employee. He showed up late, he didn't care about his work, co-workers described him as nasty, arrogant, and self-centered. He didn't listen to instructions from his superiors, and if it was a nice day out, he would skip work entirely so that he could play tennis. <laughs> Ah, oh, this is it. Like that cronyism, like where you employ your relatives and stuff. It's not a good idea because it's like people are going to think you're entitled because you are entitled. If you're not, you could prove them wrong by showing up and doing an amazing job, but you don't show up and you don't do an amazing job. You're like, oh, weather's nice. I'm just going to go play tennis today. <laughs> it makes you look like an entitled rich prick which isn't going to endear you to people, is it? The job was short-lived, and Jose eventually fired Lyle on the recommendation of one of his associates. Brave man, he said that. While all of this had been going on with Lyle, Eric had started school at Calabasas High School. He was a sophomore when they moved to California, and for the first time in his life, he was able to meet people and make friends without being compared to his older brother. Unfortunately, he fell in with a bad crowd, other people just like him. His friends were cocky, loud, and rebellious, and they would go on to get in quite a bit of trouble that would include Lyle as well. Eric also found his first girlfriend on direct orders from Kitty. Kitty was concerned that Eric might have been gay, so when they moved to California, she gave him six months to find a girlfriend or else. Or else what, you might ask? Well, I have no idea. I don't really understand any part of this plan. Was forcing him to find a girlfriend going to definitely prove that he wasn't gay? It's like, you better find a girlfriend. Dad, that's not going to make me any less gay. It's not... Oh, sorry, Mum. That's not how it works, Mum. Or if he was gay, would it make would having a girlfriend anyway somehow turn him straight? <laughs> the whole thing doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's just the 1980s for you, I guess. We're not gay. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, of course not. I mean, it's fine if that's who you are. Absolutely. I mean, I have many gay friends. My father's gay. The relationship went very poorly, but he started dating another girl, Janice, of his own accord rather than through coercion. This relationship went better, and Jose and Kitty actually liked this girl. This was a bit of a change, as they never approved of Lars' relationships. They felt that all of the girls Lyle dated were pure Baltic Avenue. 
Or uh, for Simon and any of our UK viewers, I guess pure old Kent Rose. Oh, so they're like, they're like, you dating peasants, lol. <laughs> what do you expect? These yokels are pure Baltic Avenue. <laughs> Eric, naturally, it's a Monopoly board. So Baltic, Old Kent Road is like the first brown on the Monopoly boards in English. I had no idea that in, in, in England, I had no idea Baltic Avenue was the original. Eric naturally joined the school's tennis team and quickly became their number one ranked player. This led to him becoming friends with Craig Signorelli, the team captain. The two of them spent a lot of time together and Eric actually had the freedom to pursue some of the things that he enjoyed personally rather than just the things that Jose demanded he do. He took an interest in acting, modeling, and writing. In fact, he and Craig even wrote a 62-page screenplay together. That's a little short, as a 62-page screenplay would approximately equate to a 62-minute movie. But for a couple of high school kids making a first attempt, that's pretty good. Yeah, agreed. Not many people have done that. Their screenplay was for a thriller that they called Friends, for reasons I've yet to deduce. Usually, their script is described as being about a teenager from a wealthy family who murders his parents for the inheritance money, but that's not entirely true. It's definitely something that happens in the film. In fact, it's in the opening scene. But it's not the writing a screen play about your crime smoking gun that it's usually made out to be. Yeah, it's like the thing with what was it earlier? Her being a beauty queen, them writing about their crimes in a screenplay. It's the sort of stuff that just gets good clicks. But then it turns out it's not really true. It's just like regurgitated, semi-correct facts. The villainous protagonist's dream is to basically create a perverse place where he can hunt humans for sport. Wait, isn't that already a movie? Like there's an island or like somewhere where people go to and they're hunted for sport. I feel like I've heard of this. Doing something like that would take a lot of money, but as teenagers, they naturally wanted the protagonist to be a teenager rather than some middle-aged businessman. Eric and Craig recognized that this only really gave them three options. The character could open the movie by winning the lottery, spending a year working really hard and magically earning $100 million, or by killing somebody to inherit a massive fortune. Yeah. <laughs> the only one that's realistically likely is number three. <laughs> oh god, the first option would be boring, and the second one would be ridiculous, so they just left the last option. The screenplay wasn't allowed to be used in court, which was definitely the right call, but it comes up in conversations about this case so often that I couldn't not mention it. But I mentioned that Eric had fallen in with a bad crowd, and in 1988, he, Lal, and that crowd were going to commit some crimes. One of Eric's friends had gotten the combination to the family safe in another friend's house, so they decided to break into the house and clear out the safe. It went great, and Eric and Lal were having a lot of fun, so they decided to try again without Eric's friend this time. To be clear, they were on different nights. They didn't all rob a house together, then tell Eric's friend to fuck off while they did another job. I did think that, Kevin, but thanks for clarifying. When Eric and Lyle robbed the second house, they managed to walk out with over $100,000 in cash and jewelry. This is 1980s $100,000. $100,000 is a lot of money today, but that's got to be what? Easy half mil. Calabasas is an extremely wealthy city, home to Will Smith, Kanye West, John Travolta, and a gaggle of Kardashians. It's not that surprising that there would be so much value in the homes to steal, but it's not like they were doing it for the money. It was nice to have some pocket change without having to bug Jose for it, but it was all about the thrill rather than the cash. Even so, Eric's friends would have liked some of that cash. He was a bit bitter about being cut out of the second theft, so he dropped a dime on the brothers. Eric got pulled over for a routine traffic violation and was found to have some of the stolen items in the trunk of his car. You still in half a million dollars or a hundred grand in that in that day's money amount of stuff? I feel like that's prison. That's in prison time, right? Because that's a lot. This could implicate both brothers in the crime, and once again, Jose was furious for all of the wrong reasons. He wasn't angry that they stole, although he didn't love that they had robbed people. They were supposed to be their trusted friends. He was angry that they got caught. 
Jose wasn't going to let his boys go to jail, but he couldn't buy their way out of the trouble with the police either. At least not directly. What he could do was hire an expensive lawyer that would ensure that neither of his sons would spend a day in jail. The defense attorney was able to cut a pretty sweet deal with the DA's office. Of course, they'd have to pay back the stolen money plus $11,000 in damages, but beyond that, all they had to do was pin everything on Eric. Lar was 20 years old at the point, and if he was convicted of a felony, grand theft, then he was likely to spend multiple years in jail, especially considering just how grand the theft was. But Eric was still only 17, even if only for a few more months. If they had the juvenile with no prior record plead guilty and claim full responsibility, both boys could get off scot-free. That's some solid lawyering right there. Mostly. Anyway, Eric would have to do some community service, and they'd both have to go to court-ordered therapists, but therapy is a good thing, and honestly, both brothers did probably need it. Oh boy, did they. Besides, it's not like therapy was going to somehow be their complete undoing or anything like that. The bigger problem was that this wasn't some quiet settlement. Eric pled guilty. Everybody knew that he was the one who had committed the robberies, and they weren't comfortable with the idea that Lyle and Eric weren't behind bars. The Menendez family were the talk of the town for all the wrong reasons. Jose also claimed to his colleagues at work that neighbors kept slashing his tires and were making threatening phone calls, though it's unclear whether or not that was true or just his way to evoke sympathy and distrust for his, from his son's criminal endeavors. It does sound a bit made up, doesn't it? They just keep slashing your tires. <laughs> what, because they're so upset that you robbed someone else? It'd be like, it'd just be like, if someone did that to me, I'd be like, that sucks, but I got my money back. And it'd just be like, oh man, those kids are kind of dicks. But I wouldn't then go slash the parents' tires. That would be weird. Regardless, it was time to get out. The family was forced to abandon the home that they had built in Calabasas and instead move into a $5 million mansion in Beverly Hills that had been previously owned by Elton John and Michael Jackson. Boo. Hey, it's like, oh no, we had to move to a mansion in Beverly Hills? Oh no! Stormbring. All right, with all that legal nonsense out of the way, it was time for Lyle to head back to Princeton. As soon as he was back, he picked up his relationship with Jamie again, much to the chagrin of his parents. There was just one problem waiting for Lyle, too, if you count his poor academic performance, a complete lack of desire to even attend the school. But when Lyle returned to campus to move in, he discovered that he had a roommate. He had wanted a single room, so he threw all of his roommate stuff into the hallway. According to the RA, I have no idea what an RA is, like residential assistant, something like that, because it's like, I guess, someone who's in charge of the hall. Lyle has an I'll-do-what-I-want-when-I-want attitude. To be fair, doing what you want when you want is half the appeal of living in a dorm rather than commuting to college, but most of us understood that there were still limits. Of course, Jose had to step in to fix the problem, so he wrote a letter to Princeton demanding that his son have a single room. And as a struggling student who was just coming off a suspension for cheating, why shouldn't he get the absolute best? But Lyle got his wish, and he got his own dorm room, which allowed him to almost completely isolate from the entire school body, just as he had done in his first semester. In early 1989, Jamie introduced Lyle to her friend Donovan. Donovan was Jamie's age and had decided to transfer to Princeton after two years at junior college because the school had a good reputation and lots of students his own age. The two hit it off and instantly became best friends. While Jose and Kitty never approved of Jamie, they did approve of Donovan. Not necessarily because they liked him as a person, I've no idea whether or not that was the case, but because he was willing to do Lyle's homework for him, just like Kitty had his whole childhood. Which is all well and good. But until... That's at some point you're gonna have to take some exams, right? Like university, like you have the assignments and stuff, and you can get someone else to write your assignments. I'm sure it's not challenging, not something I ever did myself, but like absolutely you could. Even back in the day, there were like ways to figure out how to do this. But then there's a problem. At some point, you're gonna have to take an exam, and they're gonna be like, How much do you actually know? And you're gonna have to write an essay or like do questions and stuff. 
in a controlled environment when you absolutely fail? No? So it makes the whole thing just a bit pointless, doesn't it? Like the, the cheating on the way there, because eventually you're going to fall down. However, this friendship would be rather short-lived. Lyle had stopped seeing Jamie, and that spring he started dating a 30-year-old model named Christy. Once again, his parents did not approve of his choice of girlfriends. After Lyle returned to campus from his spring break, he found out that Donovan had been accused of stealing things from people in Lyle's dorm. Lyle must be like, he seems like, you know, he's got this, he's extremely, like, privileged or whatever, and he's like, seems like a bit of a dick. But, like... He's at university, so he's in his early 20s, and he's pulling a 30-year-old model. <laughs> okay. After Lyle returned to campus from spring break, he found out that Donovan had been accused of stealing things from people in Lyle's dorm. He chose not to stand up for his friend, and Donovan was forced to leave Princeton. In his haste to leave, particularly because Lyle and a couple of other friends were there to confront him, Donovan accidentally left his wallet in Lyle's room, a wallet that contained his driver's license and social security cards. Okay. I don't know what that will lead to. Is he going to steal his identity or something? Back in Beverly Hills, things were going great for Jose professionally. It founded Live Entertainment, which he was the head of, though the company was still owned by Carolco. But Jose was able to renegotiate his contract with Carolco and get it extended through 1991. Because he was such a valuable part of Live, a key man life insurance policy was taken out on Jose. These policies are pretty standard if you're important enough to a big enough company. The company purchases the insurance policy, and in the event that anything happens to their executive, the policy is paid out to the company. Jose's key man policy was for $15 million, which is quite a lot, but he was worth more to the company alive. Oh my god, Jose, he is a brilliant businessman. I don't know if this is standard practice or not, if the company was just feeling generous, but Carolco also took out a $5 million personal policy on Jose, which allowed him to name anybody he wanted as the beneficiary. I'd imagine that's fairly standard. Like, Companies provide benefits, right? I imagine one of those benefits might be life insurance, especially for someone who's making as much money as him to give to his family after he dies. Lyle returned home for the summer after the school year ended, but things were becoming a mess for him. Against all odds, Jose had actually started to lower his expectations of his sons. He didn't need Lyle to be valedictorian or anything like that anymore. It didn't matter where in his class he graduated, his degree would still say Princeton University. All that mattered at this point was that Lyle passed. Jose was even going to let Eric attend UCLA in trying, instead of trying to push him into an Ivy League school, though I don't think Eric had gotten into any of them anyway. Of course, Lyle was barely passing. His report card was sent home that summer, and despite Donovan doing most of his assignments for him, Lyle was still receiving poor grades, including one F. He was placed on academic probation, but that was just the start of the bad news that Jose and Kitty were about to receive about their son's year in Princeton. Why is the parents so involved? Like, when I... This is the difference between school and university. Like, when I was at school, my report cards would be sent home, and my parents would look at them. When I went to university, they gave them directly to me, because it's like, guess what? You're 18. Your responsibility to do well. And if I didn't do well, my parents would be like, you could do better. And I'd be like, yeah. Yeah, I know. I could. I just wish I, 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 just wish I was trying. <laughs> but it's like, it's on you. It's way more on you. Not only was Lyle on academic probation, he was also put on disciplinary probation as well. He'd thrown a party in the communal area of his dorm hall, and rowdy party guests had damaged the school's pool tables. Oh yes, and his driver's license had been suspended for speeding. Again. And Lyle and Donovan had gotten the family kicked out of their fancy Princeton country club by taking a late-night joyride in a golf cart that caused a lot of property damage I was going to have to pay for. <laughs> Oh, 
That does sound kind of fun, though. These were pretty serious problems, but they at least theoretically had easy solutions. They could pay for all the damages, and Lyle could go back to school the next year and actually take his classes seriously for once to pull himself out of academic probation. Yes, but even if he does, is he bright enough? He's going to Princeton, and he scraped his way in on a scholarship. On a, on, on a sports scholarship. So, is he really capable of doing well at Princeton? That's easier said than done, but it was a clear path forward. However, there was another problem that had the potential to derail Lyle's entire future. Christy had just found out she was pregnant. Is this Christy the 30-year-old model? Before I say this had an easy solution, he flew to New Jersey, pressured Christy into getting an abortion, and paid her $100,000 to fuck off forever. He and Kitty made sure that Lyle would not try and pursue a relationship with Christy anymore. And that was the end of it. That mess may have been sorted out, but Jose and Kitty were still at their wits' end. Their sons had been given every advantage in life. They had been trained since birth to be the best, but they still couldn't do anything right and kept getting into serious trouble. Jose had even lowered his expectations, yet the boys were still falling short of his demands. At the moment, Lyle was the one causing a lot more problems, but he also spent most of the year on the opposite side of the country. Once Eric began attending UCLA the next fall, that's in California, right? I feel like University California Los Angeles, is that right? And was no longer under his parents' constant disapproving gaze, there's no telling what trouble he was going to get himself into. To be fair, Jose was trying to raise his boys to be just like him, and he certainly seemed to be a gigantic piece of shit with no respect for anything or anyone. I'm not sure why he would expect to raise his two sons to be superior clones of himself that were also completely subservient to him. It was like Dr. Fuji genetically engineering Mewtwo and then being shocked that it didn't care for being enslaved. <laughs> what? <laughs> Who are these people? Isn't Mewtwo some, like, Pokemon shit? We dreamed of creating the world's strongest Pokemon. And we succeeded. I have no idea what's going on. Jose and Kitty only had one weapon left in their arsenal to force Lyle and Eric to understand how serious the situation was becoming. Their boys were in danger of throwing away their lives with their childish and irresponsible behavior, and if they didn't turn things around immediately, then their parents would both rewrite their wills and take the boys out of them entirely. Uh-oh. I just watched a movie that was really good. Um, I haven't even finished it yet, so... I would say don't spoil, but this episode will go out in like weeks, and I'll definitely have finished it by then. I, I watch so little TV these days that it's like I won't finish a single movie in an evening. It'll be like, no, no, you get out through 45 minutes, so then it's like time for bed. But it's called Knives Out, and it's kind of like a murder mystery. And it's about this guy, and he rewrote his will, and then he gets murdered, and it's exciting. How was it? The party? Pre my dad's death? Oh, it was great. Eric spent a lot of time that summer traveling to compete in tennis tournaments, trying to qualify the for the boys' junior national tennis championship. Each time he played, he got knocked out in the second qualifying round. It's obviously not as good as he hoped, but he kept making it past the first round, so it wasn't necessarily hopeless either. He'd chosen to attend UCLA over UC Berkeley because it had the stronger tennis program, so he seemed to be taking tennis seriously and was willing to put in the work. Isn't Berkeley? I thought that, in my mind, like there's... I guess it's just like famous schools rather than Ivy League schools, but I just think like thought Berkeley would be like Ivy League, no? It's Berkeley. It's like super like if someone says I went to Berkeley, I'd be like, you're an intelligent jab, aren't you? Similarly, Jose had purchased a condo just outside of Princeton for Lyle. Not only would this take him away from the distractions of dorm life, but it was also a two-bedroom condo, so Jose and Kitty could come and visit any time they wanted and make sure that he was staying on track. There weren't any more arrests or other serious issues involving the boys, and it was starting to seem like the threat may have worked. Perhaps Lyle and Eric were finally going to stop screwing around and take their overprivileged lives seriously. 
But tensions were rising at the Menendez household as the summer months drew to a close. Kitty had become afraid of her sons. We'll talk about one of the likely reasons for this when we get into the trial, but another may have been related to their therapist. Lal and Eric had been seeing Dr. Jerome Oziel thanks to their court-ordered therapy. Kitty had chosen Dr. Oziel on the recommendation of her own therapist, Dr. Summerfield. However, the sessions with Dr. Oziel weren't entirely confidential. If you recall, the reason Eric took the fall for their burglaries was because he was a minor at the time, although only just. Now, the rules get a little bit complicated, but generally speaking, a minor does not have a right to privacy from their parents, unless the therapist has the child's parents sign a confidentiality waiver, which is a good idea if you want the child to actually be honest and forthcoming. Other than that, the parents have a right to know what happens in the sessions. But Jose and Kitty never signed such a waiver. Instead, shortly after beginning therapy and probably coinciding with his 18th birthday, Eric signed a consent waiver, allowing Dr. Oziel to share details of his sessions with Kitty. That's weird. There's a good chance that something Oziel told Kitty scared the crap out of her because her behavior showed that she was terrified of her sons. She wouldn't let Lyle and Eric have the keys to their house. They could come and go as they pleased, but if they wanted to come home at night, then Kitty would have to let them inside, even if it meant waking her up. That is very strange. There's a couple of strange things there. Like, why would the son sign a thing saying, like, now I'm an adult, yeah, my parents can have a look at what's going on, my therapist can talk to my parents about it, especially if what you're saying in that therapy session is something that is scaring your parents. Also, third thing, if that is, like, I'm planning on murdering my parents, surely the doctor the therapist or whatever, is allowed to break confidentiality, right? If someone's life is in, if they reasonably believe it to be in imminent danger. There's got to be some law around that, right? She also began sleeping with her bedroom door locked, though I'm going to need people to tell me in the comments whether or not that's strange. Um, no, I don't lock my bedroom door at night. Like, there's not a lock on my bedroom door at home, but we have, like, a, another house, and there's, like, uh, locks on the bedroom doors. And no, I never, I never lock that. It's just like, there's a front door, it's locked. <laughs> Who else is going to be there, my family? Oh no! It's certainly a change from how things used to be done in the Menendez house, which we'll talk about later. But for my entire life, I've kept my bedroom door locked 100% of the time I'm inside it. The locked door doesn't seem strange to me, but the two loaded 2 rifles that she started keeping in her bedroom wardrobe do. Yeah, no, when I was a kid, we didn't have locks in our bedroom doors. Like, but it wasn't, I never thought of it as strange. It was just like something, we'd, it was just like, maybe in the UK, like, am I right about this? But like, Houses don't always have, like, locked doors. Like, each door doesn't have a lock, necessarily. And my bedroom door, none of my sister's bedroom doors had locks, so we just didn't have locks. It was just how it was. Kitty even spoke to her therapist about her newfound fears. On July the 19th, 1989, one month before the murders, she told Dr. Summerfield that she believed her sons were sociopaths. According to his notes from that session, Kitty feared that Eric and Lar were narcissistic, lacked consciences, and exhibited signs that they were sociopaths. Despite the tense atmosphere of the house and Kitty's fears about her sons, they still found time to do rich people stuff. On August the 19th, the family chartered the private yacht Motion Picture Marine for a day of shark fishing. It was a big family outing, but according to the crew, they didn't seem like much of a family. Eric and Lyle seemed to want nothing to do with their parents, and their parents seemed perfectly okay with that. For the majority of the trip, the boys were kept at the front of the boat together, Jose was fishing by himself at the boat's rear, and Kitty was below deck trying to manage her seasickness. There was no way that Jose and Kitty could have known, but this trip may have been their last chance to reconcile with their boys. The day before the shark fishing yacht adventure, <laughs> it's proper rich people shit, isn't it? Lala and Eric had got a little adventure of their own. They'd taken a road trip from their Beverly Hills mansion to San Diego, 130 miles away. It would have been over a two-hour drive each way, or maybe only one hour if Lala was driving. <laughs> the destination was Big Five Sporting Goods. It was a chainsaw, so under normal circumstances, there would be no need to drive so far to find one. But these weren't normal circumstances. 
They walked into the store, with Lyle carrying the IDs Donovan had accidentally left in his dorm room, as they walked out carrying a pair of Mossberg 12-gauge shotguns and a couple of boxes of ammunition. Uh-oh. The murders. According to Lyle and Eric, on the morning of August the 20th, they played tennis together on their mansion's tennis courts. <laughs> Proper rich people kid, isn't it? Afterwards, they came inside to watch a tennis match on TV, and then they left to go to the local mall Beverly Center. Proper rich people shit. Around 5 p.m., they called up a friend and made plans to attend Taste of LA Food Festival in Santa Monica. That was their initial statement to the police, and that much is probably true. <laughs> the police are like, you are, you had a rich people day, didn't you? Rich person day. But their claims were not, <laughs> I feel like that's gonna, that could be a social media trend, couldn't it, a rich person day. <laughs> Three words for you, treat, yo, sell. Treat yourself 2011. What do we treat ourselves to? Clothes. Treat yourself. Fragrances. Treat yourself. Massages. Treat yourself. Mimosas. Treat yourself. Fine leather goods. Treat yourself. But their claims that followed were not. They told police that around 8pm they left the house to go see the new Bond film, License to Kill. Oh yeah, this is back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> a license to kill that's but i don't like that's before my time but the, the line was too long so they drove to a different theater to see batman after the movie they claimed to have driven to santa monica but they got lost along the way by the time they arrived they'd missed their friend yes for any zoomers watching there was a time before gps and cell phones when it was possible to both get lost and have no way to contact somebody if you were running late yes i remember those days like barely no, when I was when I was a kid, when I was learning to drive, we had GPS and we had mobile phones. But I remember being a kid, and yeah, my parents could get lost, and they'd take out like a road map and shit, and they were just like, oh, no, just like if someone's late, you just be like, oh, maybe they got lost, <laughs> and it was like a genuine thing you could say. And now it's like they didn't get lost; they're just disorganized. There's no people don't get lost. Anyway, the brothers claimed to call another friend from payphone, invite him out to dinner at the Cheesecake Factory, so they're back to some normal peasant shit now. <laughs> Cheesecake factories are regular people, right? Like the taste of LA Food Festival in Santa Monica doesn't sound like regular people things. They told police that they drove back to the house to pick up Eric's fake ID so that he could drink at the restaurant because it's okay to confess smaller crimes if you think you'll get off the hook for bigger crimes. Yes, people think that by confessing to smaller crimes it like makes you look honest and so they'll stop looking at you so much for the bigger crimes. Tip, they won't. If they think you're guilty of the bigger crimes, they're just going to ignore that or like put it on the back burner and just continue to look at you for the bigger crimes. When they returned home, they noticed smoke in the house, especially coming from the family room. That's when they found their parents' bodies and called 911. It was a heartbreaking story of two young men who had just discovered both of their parents murdered. Both boys seemed absolutely devastated. And when the police arrived, Eric was sobbing, screaming, and trying to ram his head into a tree while a tearful Lyle held him back. Even though about 25% of all murders are committed by family members, goddamn, the officers on scene didn't consider the boys suspects. How crazy is that to think that you're most likely by far to be murdered by your family members? <laughs> it's fucking crazy, right? Because you're like, well, they're the people I'd protect most. But then shit goes sideways and you get murdered by them or you murder them. Like, what the fuck? The officers on scene didn't consider the boys suspect. They seemed genuinely devastated by what had happened, and they had a simple yet reasonable account of what they'd done that night. There was so little suspicion on them that that night the police didn't even test their hands for gunpowder residue. Instead, the police had a different suspect in mind. When Detective Sergeant Thomas Edmonds asked Lyle the standard question of if his parents had any enemies, or if there was anybody that hated them enough to want them dead, he had a very non-standard answer. Maybe the mob. 
Initially, this made a lot of sense to investigators. Jose was the head of live entertainment, a company born from a merger involving a porno company. The mob had a lot of financial investments in the adult film industry, so it definitely seemed plausible. Plus, the dude's name was Jose Menendez. If that wasn't enough evidence to convince a 1980s Beverly Hills cop that he was probably involved in drug cartels or something similar, then I don't know what is. Of course, that wasn't what really happened. Lala Nox's account of that morning and probably afternoon was accurate, and they really did call their friends and meet him at the Taste, at Taste of LA, but they didn't leave the house at 8pm when they claimed. Jose and Kitty were in the family room, watching The Spy Who Loved Me that night. They had finished a snack of strawberries and vanilla ice cream and were now snuggled up on the couch, with Kitty laying her head in Jose's lap. I thought they had like a very… this doesn't sound like two people who don't like each other. Wait, did they not like each other? I thought they had like… Pro, there's, too, there's a lot of characters and relationships in this story. <laughs> okay, never mind. Just before getting comfortable on the couch at around 10pm, they'd have been involved in a short but intense argument with Lyle. Moments later, the boys returned with their shotguns and Eric opened fire, followed by Lyle. Jose was immediately hit, and Kitty tried to run, but they shot her in the leg, sending her to the ground. Lyle pressed the barrel of his shotgun directly against the back of Jose's head and pulled the trigger. Not a lot about the order of wounds could be determined by the autopsy, but this execution-style wound was neither the first nor the last shot fired at Jose. It's believed that the last shot was to his kneecaps to make it look like a mob hit, though that can't be stated definitively. Once Lyle and Eric had emptied all of their buckshot out of their guns and into their parents, they noticed a problem. Kitty was somehow still alive and trying to crawl to freedom. There was no turning back now, so the boys went to the trunk of the car and reloaded, this time using birdshot. They returned to the family room, and Lyle shot his mother in the face, with Eric shooting her two more times after. Again, it was believed, but not confirmed, that the final shots were to her knees. The murders were absolutely savage, and it would be very clear to investigators that it was personal. Many of the officers involved would go on to describe Jose and Kitty's murders as the most brutal crime that they'd ever witnessed in their careers. I'm not going to tell you in great detail exactly how extensively and excessively they'd been injured, but I do have a simple way to describe it. In the movie Lyle and Eric pretended to see that night, Jack Nicholson was turned into the Joker after falling into a vat of harsh chemicals. That's obviously not realistic, but whatever you think a person would look like after they fell into a vat of chemicals or even acid, what remained of Jose and Kitty's faces looked worse than that. With the murders now complete, all that was left to do was wait for the cops to show up and arrest them. Surely, neighbors had heard the repeated shotgun blasts, and the police would be swarming the mansion in no time at all. But after a few minutes passed, nothing had happened. There were no cops, no sirens, nothing but the sound of their own thoughts. Whoa. So they just fully expected to just be like, yeah, we wanted to kill our parents, and that's okay. It's worth it to go to prison because they're now dead. That's crazy. And then those thoughts suddenly became, holy shit. Maybe we can get away with this. It turns out that while their neighbors had heard the noise, they assumed it was just somebody setting off firecrackers or something, and they didn't bother to report it. Now, it's worth noting that while the boys described planning on being basically caught in the act because of all the loud gunfire, only Kitty was shot using birdshot. That means that Jose was shot in the kneecaps before they reloaded, so it's possible that on some level they had plans on getting away with the murders all along. It's also possible, as some psychologists would testify, that the murders were pure overkill and the kneecapping was coincidental rather than part of any plan. Anyway, after realizing that the cops weren't going to show up, Lyle and Eric picked up all the shell casings, hopped in the car, and drove away. They tossed their guns off Mulholland Drive into a canyon, changed into fresh clothes that weren't covered in blood, disposed of their bloody clothes and the shell casings back in, in a back alley dumpster, and went to the movie theater to purchase tickets for Batman to help establish their alibi. They then called their friends and invited him out to dinner at the Cheesecake Factory. Um, okay. You're not disposing of your stuff very well, just throwing the guns into a canyon and throwing them in a, in a back alley dumpster? You need to dispose of the evidence better than that. 
They actually considered going out to dinner, but the stress was becoming too much for them, especially Eric. He had always been described as the more sensitive and emotional of the two, and he was basically falling apart by this point. Instead of meeting their friend for dinner, they drove home, and Lyle made his infamous call to 911, where he tearfully reported that his parents had been shot. As I said, Lyle's claim that his parents may have been killed by the mob was initially effective. At least one of the detectives looked at the crime scene and had no doubt in his mind that it was a professional mob hit. The point-blank execution shot on their main target, the shots to the kneecaps, the fact that it was clearly personal and nothing was stolen or out of place, it all seemed to line up. But not everybody involved in the investigation was completely convinced, especially once the autopsy reports came in. Despite having some of the hallmarks of organized crime, the murders were sloppy. There was an excessive amount of shots fired, and there wasn't any particular reason for Kitty to have been killed. In most circumstances, family members, especially women and children, were not to be harmed if a dispute like this arose. Of course, those were more guidelines than actual rules, so it did still happen sometimes, but it still cast a shadow of a doubt over the whole mob angle. After the police left the Mendez's Beverly Hills mansion on the night of the murder without arresting the boys or even checking their hands for gunpowder residue, they believed that they had gotten away with the perfect crime. It was the family house, so of course their fingerprints and DNA would have been everywhere and been completely meaningless. Beyond that, they had to be careful to dispose of all the evidence and establish an alibi. The only evidence that had been left at the scene was a single shell casing, but Lyle happened to spot it before the police did. While he was giving his statement, he was able to discreetly pick up the shell and hide it in his pocket when the officer turned away. For the time being, Lyle and Eric weren't going to be considered suspects, in the murder of their parents, but surely they will be eventually. Surely someone's going to die the, the sale of the shotguns, and then they're going to find the shotguns, and then, I mean, we know that's how it ends, but like, how long do you think you're going to get away with it for it, Fry? It's time to, it's time to go! It's time to flee! The Spending Spree It didn't take long for Lyle and Eric to begin spending their inheritance. Four days, to be precise. Really? How fast did that go through probate? Like, it takes ages for that stuff, doesn't it? They probably would have started sooner, but they had an extravagant funeral service to plan. But the spending began the day before the funeral, and people immediately took notice of what they perceived to be rather unusual behavior. I've mentioned on this channel before that I don't put a lot of stock into so-called strange behavior immediately surrounding the death of a close friend or relative. Yeah, it's always said, like, people react to grief in different ways, and if these people are out there spending money, it's like, honestly, that could just be a way that they're just badly dealing with it. Everybody experiences grief differently, so even if a person's behavior might strike you personally as odd, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Behavior at a funeral that seems strange uh, may be noteworthy, but barring additional context, it shouldn't be considered suspicious. Of course, we obviously already know that they did kill their parents, so people's suspicions were ultimately correct. I just don't want to encourage that sort of analysis in future cases. Anyway, the boys arrived to their parents' funeral an hour late, and Eric was wearing three new Rolex watches that he purchased the day before for fifteen thousand dollars. <laughs> Wait, he's wearing three at the same time. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> the funeral was an elaborate two hundred person affair held at the Directors Guild of America in L.A. A few days later, they flew to Princeton for a more traditional church service, but it was the first funeral that drew people's suspicions especially on Lyle. Not only was he showing off his new Rolex watches, but he seemed to be totally fine. He was calm, confident, and ready to make his debut in the business world as the successor to his father. Eric, on the other hand, was much less composed. When they finally arrived at the funeral, his face was red and puffy, as if it just spent a good deal of time crying. That would certainly seem normal, but if people were going to be suspicious of Lyle, then they had to be suspicious of both boys. The two were largely inseparable, so if one was involved, then both had to be. Following the funeral, 
They were taking the limo home along with some other VIPs from the event. Among them was Jose's secretary, Marzi Eisenberg. Everybody noticed Lyle's Rolexes that were probably hard to miss, but yeah, he's, he's wearing three Rolexes. You don't not see that. But he hadn't got any attention for his expensive leather loafers. Well, no, because people's eyes will be drawn to the three Rolexes that you're wearing. He began showing them off and joked, Hey, Marzi, who said I couldn't fill my father's shoes? Lazi gave him a sincere but trite answer about not trying to fill his father's shoes and paving his own way in life, and La replied, You don't understand. These are my father's shoes. He then began discussing with one of his friends if he possibly to get tickets to watch the US Open live. It seemed clear to everyone that Carl was very comfortable spending his newfound inheritance. At the time of his death, Jose was worth just over $14 million. However, most of their money was tied up in real estate. There was the $5 million mansion where they'd been living in Beverly Hills, and there was another property back in Calabasas that made up the bulk of his estate. Before Lyle and Eric's little string of burglaries, the house they were living in was only meant to be temporary. Jose had purchased a 14-acre plot of land to build their dream house on, a house they would never even move into after leaving the city in disgrace. It turns out that the boys thought their father had a lot more money than he actually did. For reasons that aren't entirely clear, they seemed convinced that he had another $75 million hidden away in a Swiss bank account. In reality, after the loans on the property and estate taxes, Lyle and Eric were only going to inherit about $2 million each. That's a hell of a lot of difference from like half of 75 mil. But there were also the insurance policies. Jose had a $650,000 personal life insurance policy, which the boys were already spending, but wasn't there that $5 million key man life insurance policy that Live Entertainment had taken out on Jose that could go to his family? There was, but the boys were about to discover that there was a giant asterisk associated with that. About a week after the murders, probably right after returning to prom New Jersey in the funeral service, Lyle and Eric met with executives at Live to discuss if there were any assets that they might be entitled to from the company. Despite being a ruthless and unrelenting businessman, Jose was occasionally prone to slacking just as his sons were. Jose had been told when the policies were taken out that he could name anybody he wanted as the beneficiary to the $5 million policy. All he had to do was have a routine physical first. It turns out that he never got around to doing this, and as such, the personal policy wasn't valid. Oh, shit, dude. This is like, this isn't slacking, but this is exactly the sort of shit that I wouldn't do. I'd be like, yeah, 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 you have to go do this thing. And I'd be like, yeah, 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 I definitely will. I definitely will. Put it on the calendar. And, and then I'll be like, okay, I need to cancel that because I got something that came up. And then I'll never put it back on the calendar. And then something like this happened. I'll be like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> I drove around like, I just what, I, I just forgot to get my car through its <laughs> MOT one. Yeah, I shouldn't admit to this. It was, it was a long time ago, several years ago. And then I just take it for service or whatever because it needed to be serviced. And they're like, you know, you haven't had an MOT on this for six months. <laughs> I'm like, I have no idea. I have no idea. I just don't keep track of things properly because I'm busy. I got like other shit to do. And I realized that I need an assistant. <laughs> now I have someone who helps me organize this side of my life because it's such a mess. <laughs> I, I was paying a bill. Like another one that's that's not very good, like less, less illegal, was, you know, you can put standing orders or like direct debits in your bank accounts. I had one going out every month for years for like, it was only like 60 bucks or something. And it was just not labeled as anything. And I was like, well, that's weird. I had no idea what it was. I tried looking up the, the bank account online or whatever this was supposed to be for. And I just couldn't find anything. So eventually I was like, okay, look, I've been paying this for several years. I'm just going to delete it and see what happens. And nothing ever happened. So I was just paying this mysterious bill for years. And then I stopped paying it. And it's been like a year or two. I've got no angry letters saying that I owe any of my money. So I'm not really sure what happened there. <laughs> 
But I'm, no, like what I'm trying to say is like me not going to my medical for my life insurance policy is it's not slacking off. It's just exactly the sort of thing that happens when you're busy with other shit that you think is more important. Since the $15 million policy that Live had taken out was still valid and resulted in Live reporting its most profitable quarter since the company was founded, the Live execs decided to be bros and hook the boys up with bodyguards, limo rides, and a five-day stay at the Bella Hotel so they wouldn't need to stay in the home where their parents were killed. That five days cost Live $8,800, so Lyle and Eric's subsequent luxury hotel stays would be paid out of their own money. Yeah, I mean... Wait, like, for a five-day trip in a, what's assuming a very nice hotel, that isn't actually that unreasonable, is it? I mean, oh, this is like 1980s money. Okay, yeah, never mind. That's a lot more money than I thought. And obviously, $8,000 or $9,000 is a lot of money, but also I bet hotels in Bel Air are fucking expensive. After staying at a few different luxury hotels, the brothers rented adjoining apartments in Marina Del Rey. Their spending continued at an incredible rate, particularly Lyle's. Lyle rented bodyguards for a couple of weeks following the murders, but on September the 4th, he told the bodyguards their services were no longer needed. According to Lyle, his uncle had worked out a deal with the mob, so the brothers were no longer in danger, uh, which only raised more questions than it answered. But in that time, the bodyguards could attest to some of his spending, which included a $24,000 stereo system and $40,000 in clothes. Bro, you've got $2 million in the bank? You can't afford that shit. Like, two... Like, yeah, and like putting it down to like 1980s money. No, you can't spend $24,000 on a stereo if you have $2 million and you're not earning money. Like that $2 million has got to last you forever because you're not going to make any more, are you? You don't seem like that type of guy. I mean, maybe you're making some money stamping like license plates now, but not $2 million. God willing, that $40,000 is more than I will spend on clothing in my entire life. Lyle also finally purchased the one thing his parents wouldn't get him. When he got his driver's license, he asked for a Porsche. Instead, they had to settle for a crappy old Alfa Romeo. With his parents out of the way, he could finally purchase his dream car. Lyle was also ready to jump headfirst into the business world. I mentioned that he had wanted to drop out of Princeton and open a restaurant, but Jose wouldn't allow it. Now was finally his chance, and he decided he was going to purchase a restaurant in Princeton. His first choice was to buy Teresa's Pizza, located directly across the street from the front gates of Princeton University. The owner wasn't really looking to sell, and he was even less inclined after Lyle insulted him. Instead, Lyle purchased Chuck's Spring Street Cafe for $550,000. Their speciality was buffalo wings, so he named the restaurant, so he renamed the restaurant Mr. Buffalo's. He had big plans, and he wanted to turn this little cafe into a nationwide franchise, opening a new location every two months. This was to be the first of many investments by Menendez Investment Enterprises, a company he founded and staffed with his friends from Princeton. Bro, you are not this guy. You have $2 million in the bank. You're not this guy. <laughs> You don't have this money. He even rented an office at a local mall for $3,000 a month, filling it only with the nicest furniture. On the surface, it seemed like he had a solid plan for the future and what he wanted to do with his life. However, he was still unable to take anything seriously, and almost every decision he made was actually terrible. To start, all the local merchants thought Lyle was insane for, hand for his handling of chucks. Not only did they believe he paid more than double what the restaurant was worth, but that he had to be out of his goddamn mind to change the name. Chucks had built up a solid reputation over the years, and suddenly announcing it at a new name was under new ownership would immediately destroy any credibility that the restaurant had. Yeah, that's a mistake, bro. It was also going to be impossible for him to expand into a franchise since his first location was hemorrhaging money, and he had nobody but himself to blame for that. Yeah, dude, the restaurant business is hard. Like, that's not an easy business. It's not YouTube. It's not easy. It's difficult. If he had simply purchased it, changed the name, and let everything run exactly as it had been before he arrived, then things would have been fine. 
His decision to extend, expand delivery hours to 1 a.m. instead of midnight was another great idea as well. Honestly, I'd have pushed until 3 or 4 a.m. on weekends since his target demographic was clearly college students. But restaurants tend to have thin margins. Even if everything was operating efficiently, he let his friends eat and drink whatever and however much they wanted for free. If he couldn't take running a business seriously, which he couldn't, there was no way it would ever succeed. He tried getting Menendez Investment Enterprises involved in real estate and concert promotion as well, but to no avail. Yeah, bro, you're not competent at business. You know, you're not your dad. Your dad's a business legend. And thanks to his success, you have some money. But that doesn't mean you're going to be successful as well. You're not. The investment company was a joke, even if Lyle had it meant it to be one. The office he was renting was never used once, and the employees were no more serious than Lyle was. Hiring a friend from a fancy Ivy League school seems like a good way to staff a new company, but only if those friends happen to actually be studying business or something. Lyle didn't have many friends on campus, and most of the ones he did were just athletes that were prone to getting in trouble like he was. That's obviously not to say athletes can't be good at business as well, but these ones weren't. They also weren't people that Lyle knew particularly well. Some of them had only been friends with him for a few weeks before being brought onto the company. None of them knew the first thing about business, and Lyle was going to pay them either way, so they weren't terribly motivated to learn. Not when they already had a steady paycheck and access to all the free hot wings and beer that they wanted, yeah. <laughs> it does sound like a pretty sweet gig. It's like, what do you do? I oh, wait for my friend's company. And what do you do? I don't know. I went to Princeton. He hired me. I sit in an office in a real comfy chair. I look at blank spreadsheets and drink beer and eat wings. <laughs> Business is great. It wasn't just Lyle spending money, although Eric's spending was comparatively subdued. He too bought a new car, trading in his Ford Escort towards a new Jeep Wrangler. I'll never refer to a Jeep as a sensible purchase, and Jeep are just the worst, but even if Eric paid sticker price for the most high-end Wrangler model available at the time, that would have only been about $13,000 before his trade-in. His new car may have been as practical as an ashtray on a motorcycle, but it was still more reasonable than a $64,000 Porsche. Yes. Yes, it was. However, he wasn't really sure what to do with his life at this point. Should he go to UCLA as planned, or should he focus exclusively on his tennis game? Or could he maybe try his hand at business like Lyle was? <laughs> Look at Lyle and be like, yeah, business looks fun, and it's like Lyle ain't doing business. Lyle's just spending money. He decided to try that last option first, but it went horribly wrong. Eric and Zapana decided they were going to sponsor a rock concert at the Palladium in LA. It would cost them $80,000 to sponsor it, so Eric gave his partner half his money to give to the Palladium. And that was the last time his partner spoke to him before completely vanishing. <laughs> oh my god, and also, what are you sponsoring? Like, you don't have a business. Like, sponsoring means getting your like, name out there. But your name for what? You don't do anything. Not wanting to double down on his mistakes, Eric decided that the business world just wasn't for him. School had never really been for him either, especially with his unmanaged learning disabilities, so he decided that he was going to go all in on tennis. He hired a private coach for $60,000 a year to help him train, and Eric and his coach traveled extensively to compete in tournaments. He wasn't winning any of them, but they were staying in the nicest hotels, and Eric was sparing no expense on whatever new equipment he thought might help improve his game. But throughout it all, Eric had never gotten over what they had done. Family friend and founder of the Easter Bowl tennis tournament, Cena Hamilton, said that Eric wasn't a serious tennis player. She believed he was only trying to play tennis as an emotional escape. But for Eric, there was no escaping what he had done. A Shocking Confession Aside from the questionable decision not to treat Lyle and Eric as suspects from the start, the police were all over this case, doing their due diligence. But 
there were three main problems that were hindering the investigation. First was Lyle's assertion that he thought the mob was responsible for their parents' deaths. Earlier in 1989, Live Entertainment had purchased Strawberries, a chain of record stores. However, the previous year, Morris Levy, majority shareholder of Strawberries, had been sentenced to 10 years in prison on charges of extortion. He was believed to have ties to the mob and even moved across the country at one point to escape an alleged hit that had been placed on him by New York mobsters. The police had already been willing to entertain the idea that the killings were mob-related based only on some dubious circumstantial reasoning, but suddenly they were confronted with a plausible connection to organized crime. While detectives investigated that lead, the next logical step would be to follow up on the physical and forensic evidence. And that was the second problem. There wasn't any. They knew that Jose and Kitty had been killed with shotguns and that the killer or killers reloaded, but that was it. There wasn't any other physical evidence to go on, and the bodies had been badly damaged from the repeated shotgun blasts that forensic analysis was basically useless. That meant it was time to pound the pavement and interview anybody who might know anything about the Menendez family and possible enemies it might have. And that was the third problem, because they had a lot. People fucking hated Jose. So there was an endless string of possible suspects and theories on what happened presented by friends, family, and associates that they interviewed. <laughs> They'd be like, can you imagine anyone who wants to kill him? Oh my God, many people. He was a prick. <laughs> he had many enemies. Powerful enemies. The most shocking theory came from Jose and Kitty's friends in Calabasas, Peter and Karen Weir. When they were being interviewed by the lead detective, Les Zola, one of them said... I have no basis for this, but I wonder if the boys did it. Zola was shocked, as the brothers weren't considered suspects at the time, but he had to consider the possibility. There certainly was a clear motive. Money. To Detective Zoila and other onlookers, Lyle and Eric were blowing through their inheritance like there was no tomorrow, but according to some family members, their spending habits hadn't changed at all. The boys were irresponsible little shits who had never worked a day in their lives and had no concept of money. Sure, they'd taken on some very expensive and failed business ventures, but with Jose dead, it was natural for them to try and create a new source of revenue. Beyond that, their family claimed that the boys' personal spending had remained pretty much the same. Look, 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 look. You gotta work, you gotta... You inherit this money. Just talk to a financial guy and he'll be like, you need to put this into this and this into this and this will be safe. And then you can take the 10% or whatever and fuck around with it. But the rest, you need to put into like things that yield dividends or interest or rent because you're not very competent at business. Let us handle it for you and we'll just give you like 6% a year. Even so, it was a lead and detectives were becoming suspicious, but there wasn't any evidence. They had established a motive for Lala and Eric to kill their parents, but it seemed like a whole lot of people had motives. The only other lead they had was some hearsay from one of Lala's friends. According to this friend, Lala had said that there was a revised draft of their wills on Kitty's computer. On August the 31st, less than two weeks after the murders, Lila deleted the files and then hired a computer expert to check the computer and ensure that nobody would be able to retrieve the deleted files from it. The best way to do that is, like, format it many times, like the, the disk erase or whatever. It's a feature. And then destroy it with fire. <laughs> Not take it to a computer expert be like, yo, bro, can you recover any of the files from this? He's like, oh, yes, many files. There's an updated will in here. There's a murder journal that you wrote. <laughs> That was suspicious, and would be big if true, but it was hard to prove. The friend hadn't seen it happen. All he had was Lyle's secondhand story. It didn't even have the name of the person Lyle claimed to have hired for the detective to interview, and without a statement from that expert, the story was useless. I mean, what were they going to do? Use the lack of revised will on Kitty's computer as proof that one had been deleted? It could just as easily be proved that one was never written. Still, it couldn't hurt to interview the brothers again. Maybe Zola could get them to slip up or admit to something incriminating. On October the 24th, Zola interviewed Eric at the Beverly Hills mansion. Eric was alone as Lyle 
Lamar was attending to his failing chicken shack in Princeton. Throughout the interview, he seemed at ease, though internally, Eric was shrieking in terror. Zola wasn't able to sense that, but there was something potentially interesting that Eric revealed. The brothers had been extremely close their entire lives. They were best friends that did almost everything together, and Eric had spent his life idolizing Lyle. But now a rift was forming between them. Detective Zola had heard from the same friend that commented about the deleted will that the boys were no longer getting along, and Eric essentially confirmed this. He complained that Lyle was spending too much money and was becoming just like their father. Well, yeah, he's spending too much money, but he's not becoming like the father and he's in terms of bringing in more money. He's just spending it all. This was, again, interesting, but it wasn't even close to proof of anything. All it showed was that they were pretty trash at getting along now that they were in charge of all the money instead of getting handouts from Jose. And they didn't even have access to most of the fortune either. They had gotten the life insurance payout, but most of the family's assets were tied up in probate still. Zola had a lot to think about, but it was clear he wasn't going to get anything useful from Eric directly. As soon as the detective left, Eric proceeded to freak the fuck out. He had been depressed to the point of contemplating ending his life, and he was suffering from severe stomach ulcer because his body could not physically handle the immense stress that he was under. And now it seemed like the police were investigating them as suspects. Eric had simply reached his breaking point. He called Lyle in Princeton because he needed somebody to talk to, but he couldn't get a hold of him. If talking to Lyle wasn't an option, there was only one other person he could talk to. Dr. Rosiel. Eric called and set an appointment for October the 31st, exactly one week away. By the time the appointment rolled around, Lyle was back in California. He and Eric probably talked about what happened, but if so, it hadn't been enough to set Eric's mind at ease. He was still a mess inside, though his therapy session, he seemed perfectly calm. Eric and Dr. Oziel had a lovely session, much of it spent outdoors with the pair walking around scenic Beverly Hills and discussing Eric's crippling depression. As they made their way back to Oziel's office, Eric stopped and casually leaned against a parking meter. We did it, he said. We killed our parents. Oziel decided that they should probably continue this conversation back inside his office instead of out on the street. Eric began to tell him everything. But Dr. Oziel stopped him and had him call Lyle instead. Wait, what's the, what's the situation here? Because no one's in immediate danger. Is there doctor-patient confidentiality there? Like, oh my god, that's crazy. Does Dr. Oziel have to tell? Can she not? Can he not tell? Even though Lyle was now rushing to the office and Oziel had told him to wait, Eric continued telling the story. He said I had got the idea after watching a miniseries called Billionaire Boys Club. He said he didn't want to kill Kitty, but there was no way that they could get away with killing Jose if she was still alive. Besides, she had suffered from severe depression her entire life and was also a victim of Jose's abuse, so they'd be putting her out of her misery. He then outlined the events of that night exactly as we discussed earlier. By the time Lyle arrived at the office, Eric had already confessed to everything, since confidentiality law forbids therapists from talking to police about your past crimes, even unsolved murders you confessed to, Lyle decided to breathe a sigh of relief and be super chill about the whole thing. Oh my lord. I guess that makes sense. I guess that makes sense, but that's pretty... Can you imagine the shit therapists here? And then they just can't tell anyone about it. It's like, oh, I've killed... I've killed hundreds of people. And they're just like, oh... <laughs> Fascinating. Um, yeah, you know, fast crimes, can't, I can't tell anyone. My mother tried to have me whacked because I put her in a nursing home. In your worst dreams, a duck flies off with your penis. Castration. Hey, my mother never went after my basket. No, not literally. Except that's obviously not what happens. <laughs> oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> not only was Lyle furious with Eric for talking, he was boastful about the crime as well. For possibly the first time in their lives, he thought that Jose would have been proud of them for successfully committing the perfect murder. Thinking that your victim would be proud of you for killing them is pretty messed up, but at least he was in the right room to be discussing those feelings. Wait a second. 
if Lyle is talking about this, is that is there is there a duty of care between Dr. Oziel and Lyle? Lyle's not a patient of Dr. Oziel, so can Dr. Oziel go and tell on Lyle, even if it gets um oh God, what's the other kid's name? <laughs> Eric in trouble. Dr. Oziel tried to regain control of the situation by explaining the difference between a crime of passion and premeditated murder, stating that the latter was considered a sign of sociopathy. According to Oziel, or when he said that the boys looked at each other and said, Ooh, we're sociopaths, and to make an uncomfortable situation even worse, Lyle then threatened to murder Oziel if he told anybody. We can go ahead and add, don't threaten to murder your therapist, our list of rules are criminalists, because this was a rather ironic mistake. Yes, yes, because that's a potential future crime, and the therapist can believe that he's genuinely in danger so then he can go and do something about it whereas before he couldn't so that was very silly the boys were actually safe from the doctor until lal made his threat a threat that he made believing it would keep them safe coming forward to report eric's confession of a past crime could have cost oziel his license and opened him up to lawsuits but if a patient makes a credible threat to harm themselves or others then the doctor becomes legally obligated to report that to the police but that's not actually what happened. Dr. Oziel didn't go to the police. Instead, he kept seeing the brothers as a therapist. They even met again just two days after the initial threat was made, though Lyle reiterated the threat that day. Oziel continued to see them for months, taking notes and recording their conversations, but at no point did he have any intention of going to the police. I'm guessing he was just really committed to trying to help them, because it's not like he would be dumb enough to use the tapes to blackmail a pair of murderers that had already threatened to kill him. <sighs> Is that what he's going to do? Dude, that's crazy. They murdered people. Don't be doing that, Dr. Rosa. It's also mega unethical, even though they're horrible murderers. You've got to report it to the police. You've got to report the threat of them to you, and then the police will figure it out. Come on, Oziel. Don't be a dick. Just do the right thing, Oziel. As the months rolled on, the police were running out of options. They had interviewed Craig, Eric's friend with whom he wrote the screenplay, and Craig said that Eric had confessed the murders to him. What are you doing? Don't be confessing your murders. But only sort of. Eric had given a description of what happens, though he ended it all by saying, it could have happened. <laughs> it's like, what's that book? If I Did It uh, by O.J. Simpson, right? Where he's like, if I did it, this is how. <laughs> I didn't do it, though. In his book, O.J. Simpson says that he would have taken a bullet or stood in front of a train for Nicole. Man, I'm going to tell you, that is some bad luck when the one guy who would have died for you kills you apparently the two friends like to play bizarre mind games with one another and it wouldn't have been all at all out of character for eric to have completely made up this story since the police were already suspicious of the brothers they thought that maybe they could do something with this to their surprise craig agreed to wear a wire to the next time he went out with to, for dinner with eric unfortunately when he asked about eric he said that he'd been lying and that he and lyle had nothing to do with the murders it didn't take the police it didn't make the police any less suspicious but it meant that the kind of sort of confession to craig uh, is going to be useless running out of ideas detective zola decided to try and track down the shotguns that had been used in the murders he got an 80-page list of every store in L.A. County that sold shotguns in the hopes that he'd find something. The police recognized that Lal and Eric were probably too smart to have used their own names, so they tried to find out if any shotguns were purchased using one of their friends' names as well. They were on the right track, they just didn't realize that the brothers had driven all the way to San Diego County to make their purchase. In the end, they came up with nothing. Every lead had been followed as far as it would go, but after six months of investigation, they, were they had come up completely empty-handed. Then, on March the 5th, 1990, Juddalon Smythe contacted the detectives to blow the case wide open. Who the hell is this guy? Juddalon was another patient of Dr. Oziel's and also his mistress. And possibly, oh God, Dr. Oziel, you're in an affair with a patient. <laughs> Mate, and you planning? Was he really trying to plan to blackmail these guys? 
Dr. Rosie, or you got some ethical issues, my dude. And possibly his victim of psychological manipulation and abuse. Or maybe she wasn't even a mistress, and Oziel's wife was on board with the whole thing because Jadalon had been living in the family home for months. What? <laughs> It was a whole complicated thing, and Ozil would definitely go on to lose his license over the giant mess, but we don't have to worry about the specifics of their relationship. <laughs> oh my god, this guy's also such a mess. The only thing we need to be concerned with is that Ozil had broken up with Jadalon, so now she was going to get back at him. She had been at the office the day Eric confessed, and Lyle made his death threats. The confession had begun outdoors, but when Ozil brought Eric inside, he instructed Jadalon to listen in on their conversation. She heard the confession and the threats that day, and more importantly, Ozil had told her that he had everything on tape. And that was that. Police got a warrant, and Uziel handed over 17 tapes to the police, playing the initial tape of the confession for them. On March the 8th, Lyle and a couple of friends left his Beverly Hills mansion to go to the Cheesecake Factory for lunch. By this point, though, he already knew something was up. When he was flying back to California the day before, he called Mr. Buffalo's from the plane and learned the detectives had flown out to Princeton to see him. As they began driving away from the mansion, Lyle's car was immediately swarmed by police cars, and he was arrested. Eric was in Israel at the time, competing in a tennis tournament when he heard about the arrest. After calling his uncle Carlos for advice, it was decided that the best thing to do was him to fly home and voluntarily turn himself in. Eric was arrested at the airport on March the 11th. Carlos, Uncle Carlos, you're giving him bad advice. Eric, mate, you got to take the rest of your money and go to Lebanon because there's no extradition. <laughs> it's all about Lebanon. I used to say it was Belize. Like, that was my joke. Like, you know, criminals, they got to run off to Belize. That's where they got to go. And then a mate of mine was like, why Belize? And I'm like, I don't know. It sounds like that country where people run away to. It's like, Belize is like British. <laughs> Apparently, Lebanon is the country. Apparently, they don't even extradite terrorists. <laughs> But even with the tape's confessions, Zoila knew that he needed more. People say all sorts of stupid shit, and there wasn't a shred of physical evidence to connect the boys to their parents' murders. Besides, they still needed to wait on a judge to rule whether or not the tapes would even be admissible in court. Luckily, Eric's confession had been very detailed, and the detective now knew that he needed to be looking for shotgun purchases in San Diego. After about a week, Zoila found the sale of two Mossberg shotguns made two days before the murder. The record had Donovan's signature and a fake San Diego address. I can only imagine how the phone call went down when Zoila called up Donovan to ask where, where he was on the 18th of August 1989. I'm not sure a person can answer anything besides how the hell should I know when asked about a specific date so many months in the past. Yeah, I don't understand that. If someone asked me what I did last Monday, I'd be like, I need to check my calendar. <laughs> and there's probably nothing on there. So it's like, okay, I'll go back and like check my to-do list to see what I did that day. <laughs> It's not going to be interesting, though. Luckily, that's what computers are for. Donovan was clocked in at his job managing a restaurant in New York City at the time the guns were purchased. When he was shown a copy of the firearms purchase record, he confirmed that the signature used looked absolutely nothing like his. Soda finally had something physically to physically link Lyle and Eric to the crime. The brothers were arraigned on March the 26th, with both pleading not guilty to first-degree murder with two special circumstances. They were accused of lying in wait and committing multiple murders. This meant that by going to trial, instead of trying to work out a plea deal, the death penalty would be on the table. They were held without bail and trial, and it would take three years for the trial to begin due to a major disagreement on the admissibility of Dr. Ozil's tapes. Of the 17 tapes collected, there were three that the prosecution was seeking to use in trial. The others oh, were just boring, rich person therapy stuff. After going all the way to the California Supreme Court, it was ruled that the prosecution could only use one of the tapes. The tape was Dr. Ozil's dictation of his notes from the meetings with Lyle and Eric on October the 31st and November the 2nd, the two days in which Lyle had threatened to kill the doctor. The tape was extremely incriminating, and it, pro and it proved with near 100% certainty that the brothers had killed their parents. 
But because it was Ozil dictating his notes from the sessions, his was the only voice on the tape. The two tapes on which Lyle and Eric discussed the murder themselves were ruled inadmissible. It was disappointing for the prosecution, but it would later turn out to only be a temporary setback. Logistically, the trial itself was going to be a bit strange. Lyle and Eric were being charged separately, which normally would have meant that they would have had separate trials. However, because the cases had nearly identical witness lists and the same facts would be pertinent to both cases, Judge Stanley Weisberg decided that in the interest of time and money, they would be tried at the same time. It was technically two different trials taking place in the same courtroom at the same time, so Lyle and Eric would each have their own jury. In the event a witness or piece of evidence only pertained to one of the brothers, the other brother's jury would be excused. And now the tapes had been ruled on, the trial could finally begin. More importantly, even though the prosecution was only allowed to use one of the three tapes, the boys still weren't going to be able to claim that they hadn't killed their parents. But they had both pled not guilty to murder, so how the hell were they going to mount a defense if they weren't going to dispute the fact that they both repeatedly pulled the trigger? They're going to go for like some diminished responsibility thing, aren't they? The answer is simple. The defense would argue that these motherfuckers had it coming, or in legal terms, that it was imperfect self-defense. Never heard of imperfect self-defense. I don't think like a defense to murder, although apparently it is, is like, why'd you murder them? They had it coming. <laughs> not guilty! Judge Weisberg does everything twice. The trial began on the 20th of July 1993, and Judge Weisberg decided that the case would be televised. This was one of the first high-profile cases to air on television, predating O.J. Simpson's trial by a couple of years, and it was a media sensation that captivated the entire United States. Honestly, Weisberg's decision to televise the trial is a bit surprising. The previous year, Judge Weisberg had presided over the trial of four police officers that beat Rodney King. In 1992, the LA riots began the moments that verdict was broadcast on Core TV, so I figured Weisberg would be done with TV cameras in his courtrooms after that happened. Yeah, like even I know that story. You probably think he'd be like, well, they burned me once, <laughs> so let's not do that again. But no, Weisberg wants it all televised, which I guess is good for us because he's going to give us lots of details of the, of the case. It was over three years since Lyle and Eric had been arrested, and they had spent that entire time in jail. Unsurprisingly, incarceration was not particularly conductive to the privileged and shitty attitudes the brothers had grown up with. This is actually a bit of a problem for the defense. When the murders took place, Lyle was 21, Eric was 18, and I think it's fair to say that they were both immature for their ages. But after three years in jail, they'd been forced to mature. At their arraignment, the brothers had entered their pleas of not guilty while trying to stifle their laughter at what they perceived to be the judge's comical appearance. It's probably not... Well, it sounds like they've really matured a lot, doesn't it? It's probably not good as the defendant in a murder trial to be laughing in the courtroom, but it illustrated that they were mentally still children at the time, or at least adolescents. Wait, I thought prison had forced them to mature. The fact that they had now grown physically and mentally in the past three years was going to make it harder to garner sympathy from the juries. Ah, oh, wait, I'm sorry, I wasn't following. They were laughing originally when they were arrested because they were still young and stupid, but now they've had three years in jail. <laughs> They're like, come on, it's like, I've seen things, bro. <laughs> While Lyle and Eric each had their own attorney, Eric's lawyer, Leslie Abramson, was the real star for the defense. She was a high-priced lawyer to the tune of $750,000 over the course of the trial. And this was the 15th high-profile murder defense that she had helmed. And it was the defense utilized by both Leslie and Lyle's attorney, Jill Lansing, that would be the most important part of the case. We're not even going to really look at the prosecution's case because it was largely irrelevant. Since the brothers had admitted to the murders, there wasn't really a lot for the prosecution to do other than trying to portray them as liars and spoiled brats who killed their parents for money. The only thing that really mattered was the defense and whether or not the jury would believe that Lyle and Eric were telling the truth. 
I've already covered that Jose and Kitty were both psychologically and physically abusive. There were a lot of witnesses to this behavior, and it wasn't heavily contested. However, these events took place in the 1980s, and the trial took place in the early 90s. So they were mostly given a pass for that. It may not have been the 1950s, but physical abuse of your children still wasn't really seen as that big of a deal, especially if you were rich. As far as most people were concerned, Jose was just a very strict parent who was pushing his children to be success as successful as he was. While the mental and physical abuse were part of the brothers' defense, the much bigger part was the claims of continued sexual abuse beginning when Lyle was six years old. Is that something that's been mentioned so far? Whether or not the brothers' allegations of sexual abuse could be believed was the crux of the entire trial. They spent hours on the stand detailing all the sexual abuse they had faced, primarily at the hands of Jose, but from Kitty as well. To reiterate, what follows are allegations against Jose and Kitty based on testimony from the trial, and that's all. According to Lyle, it began when he was six. It started with his father giving him massages after sports practice, massages that became extremely inappropriate. Jose didn't care when Lyle said that he didn't like it and that it hurt, and his father told him that bad things would happen if he ever told anyone. Yeah, this is this is just allegedly, right? Because this is like they murdered their parents, and it seems that they're just psychos. And I mean, the parents seems like piece, seem like pieces of work as well, to be honest. But this is like super motivated by the fact that they don't want to go to prison for murder. Of course, Lyle did tell someone, and that someone was Kitty, but she couldn't have cared less. She just said that Lyle was exaggerating about what had happened and that Jose had every right to punish his sons if they misbehaved. Jose's abuse of Lyle continued for a few years until he moved on to his younger son, Eric. When Lyle got a little older, it was Kitty's turn. Both brothers much preferred Kitty to Jose, and when he was out of town, they would fight over who got to sleep in the bed with her, continuing until they were teenagers. That's weird. There's a point where that's got to stop. It's like, right now, my kid's three. And it's like, every every night now, she's like, hey, dad. And I'm like, oh, you're in my bed. Hello. <laughs> but that's fine. But it's fine. But at some point, it should stop. And that time is definitely before they are teenagers. <laughs> my kid this morning was so sweet. I know we're talking about these people who murdered their kids. But this morning, she was like, dad, can you give me a cuddle? And I'm like, yeah, of course I can give you a cuddle. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I say, I love you so much. And she's like, I love you so much too, dad. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> God, having kids is so nice. Who would have thought it'd be so nice? Psychologists would testify that this behavior was because the abuse had left them terrified of being alone, not because they wanted to do things with their mother. But when Lara was 11, she began doing things in bed with him, touching him and demanding that he touch her everywhere. She also gave Eric genital exams when he was 15. Until he was 15, sorry. Jose would casually watch illegal pornography with his sons and took photos of them naked from the waist down, photos that were shown in court. As a direct okay, well that's weird. As a direct result of this alleged abuse, Lar confessed on the stand to taking his brother to the woods uh, where they were when they were kids and using a toothbrush to do the same things to Eric that Jose had dude. There are literally hours of more specific allegations about what abuse per- was perpetrated, especially by Jose. But I'm going to assume that you get the point. Yes, Kevin, we get the point. Thank you. Lyle and Eric claims that they had spent their entire lives living in fear, and specific events that we'll get to momentarily led them to believe that they were in imminent danger. That's all well and good. But Lyle and Eric had already admitted to lying to the police for months, so why would the jury believe them about their claims of abuse? Well, that's where things get a little bit tricky for the defense. They had about three dozen witnesses prepared to testify that Jose and Kitty's abuse, particularly the physical and mental abuse. However, Judge Weisberg, who had already whittled down that list of defense witnesses from a proposed 90 based on his perception of relevance to the case, 
and that had cut the defense off before they could get through all of their remaining witnesses. Weisberg said that it was a murder trial, not a custody hearing, so these witnesses weren't important. While the power of hindsight makes me hate this decision, it's not like he didn't have a fair point. The entire defense strategy was to put the victims on trial, and generally speaking, that's pretty gross. The fact that they weren't even alive to defend themselves would make it even worse. Yeah, but it's what defense does. It's like, yeah, defending of murderers and people who've done horrible shit is kind of gross. It's just the way of things. Everyone's entitled to a defense. And that defense has to do whatever they can. It's hard to say whether or not Weisberg made the right call, and this was one of many controversial decisions that he made over the course of the trial. Then again, even allowing the sexual abuse allegations into the trial in the first place was also controversial. In short, I do not envy Judge Weisberg and the many tough decisions that he had to make. Fortunately, this particular decision was made after the defense had been able to call some witnesses and could potentially corroborate the claims of sexual abuse. But all of the testimony to support the claims of sexual abuse were from people that had been told about it by Lyle and or Eric. Nobody had personally witnessed such abuse directly. Of course, that's not to say their testimony was without merit. Most notable was the account of their cousin, Diane van der Molen. The prevailing opinion of the time was that these allegations against Jose and Kitty were a desperate last-minute attempt to concoct a story that the Menendez brothers could use to defend themselves. Yeah, that's kind of what it sounds like, and if I was there at the time, kind of what I would believe. To most people, this was another example of the abuse excuse, a derogatory term used for attempting to use prior abuse as a legal defense for future retaliation. It's a well-known term, and famous lawyer and Harvard law professor Alan Dershowitz was about to publish his book The Abuse Excuse and Other Cop-Outs, Sob Stories, and Evasions of Responsibility. But Diane's story would completely erase the idea that this was a last-minute strategy so long as the jury believed what she said. Diane had been staying at the Menendez home for a visit when Lyle confessed to her that Jose had been abusing him sexually. According to her testimony, this happened in 1976, when Lyle was eight years old and she was a young teenager. Upon hearing this, Diane told Kitty what she had just been told. Kitty told her that Lyle was lying and put him to bed upstairs, never speaking of it again. Another key piece of testimony for the defense. Wow, this is super unreliable, though, because it's eyewitness testimony. It's a memory of being told something by somebody who's a notorious liar decades ago. A decade at least ago, or whatever it was. It's That is super unreliable. Another key piece of testimony for the defense came from friends and neighbor of Jose and Kitty. This witness claimed that she'd come over to the Menendez's home for a dinner party. Following dinner, Jose intended to put on a home movie for his guests, but he accidentally put on one of the tapes he would watch with his sons that featured child sexual assault. No fucking way. Rather than stopping the tape, the witness said he just laughed and let it keep playing. Oh my god, that fucking changes shit. Because that is not some kid half-remembering things. That is a fully grown adult seeing some crazy shit and being like, brrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrr
Lyle confronted his father about abusing Eric, and Jose said that if he ever told anyone, that it killed them. According to the brothers, they took this threat seriously. Not only did they believe their father would kill them, but that he might do it at any moment. Fast forward a week to the night of the murder. Lyle and Eric were preparing to leave the house at around 10 p.m. and Kitty started one of those you're not leaving this house this late because I said so sort of arguments. Pretty standard stuff, though usually that's reserved for teenagers rather than 21-year-olds. Oh yeah, <laughs> be like, I'm 21. I'm going out. Sorry. Get lost. <laughs> Kitty and Lyle had walked out of the den arguing, then Jose came out to put an end to the fight. He told Kitty to shut up and then told Lyle, You're not going out because I said so. Lyle fired back with, You're not going to touch my little brother. The fight escalated with Jose allegedly yelling at Lyle, I'll do what I want with my family. He's not your little brother. He's my son. Kitty yelled at Lyle that he had ruined their family. Then Jose grabbed her by the arm and brought her into the den, closing the doors behind them. They never closed the doors. Lyle assumed that meant this was it, that Jose and Kitty were inside the den preparing to murder their sons. He ran to Eric and said, It's happening now. And they immediately grabbed their shotguns to defend themselves by making sure they shot first. Oh my god, this is a... The, the fact about the woman seeing that tape when he intended to show like a movie and the cousin thing being added to that. I'm like, I don't know what to believe anymore. And the reality is, if I'm sitting on a jury for this case, right... It's reasonable doubt. And I ha absolutely have reasonable doubt. Which is kind of crazy. <laughs> That's what a $750,000 lawyer gets you. After all this testimony, all that was left was closing arguments and for the two juries to decide on Lyle and Eric's fate. However, the judge had one more controversial decision to make during the trial. In a three-day-long closing argument, good lord, Leslie hammered home the point that, legally speaking, it didn't matter if Jose and Kitty were actually going to murder their sons. All that mattered was that Lyle and Eric believed that they were going to. Self-defense only requires that a reasonable person in their situation would have feared for their life. But Judge Weisberg disagreed that this applied. Oh, why? That's fairly standard, isn't it? Weisberg ruled that there was no evidence that a reasonable person would have feared for their lives and that the jury was not allowed to acquit on the basis of self-defense. What? Instead, they could only lessen the charges based on the common law doctrine of imperfect self-defense. This would apply if the jurors felt that Lyle and Eric had an honest but unreasonable belief that their actions were necessary. Um, I don't think that belief is unreasonable if they genuinely believe that their lives were in danger. And I think if what they're saying is true... I think a reasonable person could definitely think that. I don't think that's unreasonable at all, if what they're saying is true. And that's for the jury to consider, not the judge. So I think the judge has misstepped in this, in my opinion. The jury's options were to vote for first-degree murder, second-degree murder, voluntary manslaughter, or involuntary manslaughter. Ultimately, it didn't matter that regular self-defense was off the table, as the end result would have been the same whether acquittal was an option or not. Like I said, the only real question at play was whether or not the jurors believed Lyle and Eric about all the abuse that they had suffered and the extent to which they claimed to fear for their lives. And that was going to be a tough sell. There was no physical evidence of abuse, though there rarely is evidence of molestation. The closest the defense had found of physical evidence was a medical record from Eric when he was seven, year old, seven years old describing a throat injury. Their expert witness testified that the, jury, that the injury described could have been caused by force fellatio, although the prosecution counters by getting the expert to admit that there were other possible explanations as well, like face planting with a popsicle stick in your mouth. But not only oh, was there no meaningful evidence and nothing beyond the account of the brothers, there was also Dr. Ozil's tapes. 
While originally two of them had been barred from the trial, because the defense decided to make Lyle and Eric's mental state the focal point of the trial, Judge Weisberg allowed the remaining tapes to be admitted to evidence. That meant the jury heard them describing to Oziel how they'd killed their parents, and they heard Lyle say that he missed his mum in the same way that a person might miss their dog. Not only were the contents of those tapes devastating for the defense, but so was what was missing from the tapes. In none of the brothers' sessions with Dr. Oziel had they mentioned their sexual abuse. Of course, that's not a surprise. To start, victims of the kind of that kind of abuse are often too ashamed to talk about what happened. Even ignoring that point, Eric knew that Oziel was going to tell Kitty what happened in their sessions. It's unlikely he would have risked revealing the family's darkest secret, knowing the serious repercussions that it faced for it back home. Yeah, I mean, he's not going to talk openly because he knows that the stuff's going back to his mum for whatever reason, even though he signed it to be okay. But since there wasn't any physical evidence to back up the claims of sexual abuse, there was only one way the brothers could have come up with their story. The prosecution argued that Kitty had been right all along and that Eric was gay. This claim was evidenced by an alleged report of Eric engaging in sexual behavior with another man in prison. They argued that his experience in intimate homosexual relations had given him the ability to construct the elaborate scenes he and Lyle described involving their father. The two juries had a lot to think about, and after 16 days, they announced that they were deadlocked. Weisberg ordered them to keep trying to come to a consensus, but after three weeks, they still couldn't agree on a verdict. Lyle's jury had seven men and five women. Eric's had eight men and four women. The final votes in favor of a murder conviction were 7-5 and 8-4, split directly down gender lines. It was almost as if women are more likely than men to take claims of sexual abuse seriously. But with the jury deadlocked and a mistrial declared, it meant that they were going to have to do everything all over again. When the verdict was announced, the public was shocked. From the moment Lyle and Eric were arrested until the trial began, the media had been portraying them as greedy, spoiled brats that killed their parents for money. And since the defense was keeping its strategy a secret, there wasn't an alternate narrative being presented until the trial had already begun. And although the trial was televised, not all of it was. Weisberg decided that testimony regarding sexual abuse would not be aired. Well, in that case, it's going to seem like very, because that's the main defense. It's going to seem very strange that the jury are like, oh, we're not sure. <laughs> the audience is going to be like, well, we're definitely missing something here, aren't we? Because they're guilty. There were some other things that weren't broadcast as well, because it was feared they would be overly prejudicial, but that decision was the most important. It meant that although the public had a vague idea of what the brothers had claimed as a defense, the details weren't widely known. As a result, there was no reason for anyone to question the narrative that had existed for years, and the brothers' guilt remains the prevailing opinion. It took over a year before the second trial would begin, and this time uh, there were going to be some changes. To start, no more cameras. Weisberg didn't care for what a media circus the first trial had become, so it was time to put an end to that. Second, there would only be one jury. Third, most of the lawyers involved had changed. Eric still had Leslie to defend him, but Lyle's lawyer and the district attorney had been replaced. Lyle now had a public defender because the Menendez estate had completely run out of money and the prosecutors were replaced since the first ones had failed to seal the deal. Oh, you've burned all the money already. God damn. But the most important change was the defense strategy. After some zealous arguments by Assistant District Attorney David Kahn, Judge Weisberg ruled that the defense could not present the battered person syndrome theory that had been their entire defense in the first trial. His justification for this isn't entirely clear, though personally I suspect that he simply didn't believe that it existed. Judge, it, this shouldn't be your decision though. This should be allowed, and then the jury can decide whether they can believe it, no? In the first trial, he refused to let Dr. Rosio use the word sociopaths to describe the brothers because he felt it was a psychological buzzword. It sounds like he was a typical man that grew up in the 1940s and wasn't interested in claims and excuses of head shrinkers at all, although that part is just my speculation. <laughs> yeah, I kind of with you on that one, Kevin. 
allegedly. But whatever his reason, the ruling severely hindered the defense. Their entire case had been built on showing how a lifetime of abuse had affected the mental state of the brothers, causing them to fear for their lives. And in this second trial, they weren't allowed to talk about any of that. There was no witness to testify about the abuse, just the word of Eric himself, and he was only allowed to be questioned about his mental state during the week leading up to the murders, not all the underlying factors that would have resulted in that mental state. This seems very prejudicial, doesn't it? It's like the judge looks at it and sees what did the last judge get wrong and being like, no, 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 no. This time we're going to do things differently. We're going to throw out all the stuff that confused the jury and made them say not guilty and just keep the stuff that makes them look guilty. It's a bit weird, isn't it? Even Lyle didn't testify the second time around, though that was a strategic decision. The prosecution had recordings that they believed proved he lied in the first trial. In a recorded phone call made from prison, the prosecutors claimed Lyle said in so many words that he fooled half the country in the first trial and now he just had to fool the other half. If he had taken the stand, they felt they could have destroyed him with that recording. Clearly, the defense agreed, but because he didn't take the stand, and thus the recordings were never admitted into evidence, I can't tell you what he actually said instead of just the paraphrased version. It should be clear at this point which way this new trial was going to go, but there was one major change in the trial. When all the proceedings had concluded, and it was time for Weisberg to give the juries their instructions before deliberating, he ruled that there wasn't evidence the brothers were in danger, and thus the juries would not receive instructions on imperfect self-defense. Wow, it's just another way that they're like, he's the judge is super pushing this trial towards a guilty conclusion, no? The jury had essentially been left with only one option, and after four days of deliberation, they found Lyle and Eric guilty of two counts of first-degree murder with two special circumstances, as well as conspiracy to commit murder. Luckily for the brothers, the same jury would show them mercy at the sentencing hearing. After deliberating for three days, they voted to punish them with life in prison rather than the death penalty. In interviews following the trials, the jurors said that the allegations of sexual abuse played no part in their decision. Nobody believed the allegations, and they only chose to spare the brothers' lives because they basically had no previous criminal record or history of violence. After all, how could Lyle and Eric have been sexually abused? They were boys, and as far as the general public was concerned, back in 1996, boys weren't capable of being abused like that. Six years later, the Catholic Church. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, wait, 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 wait. When did all that church it kick off? The Catholic Church reminds everyone just how wrong they were about that assertion, but this realization would come too late for the Menendez brothers. On July 2, 1996, Judge Weisberg sentenced Lyle and Eric Menendez to two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. The Department of Corrections decided that the two brothers would not be imprisoned at the same facility. They'd not see each other again for 22 years. A Challenger Approaches Dated December 1988, approximately nine months before the murders took place, quote, Lyle wants to stay, but Dad wouldn't let him. So now I'm stuck here alone. I've been trying to avoid Dad. It's still happening, Andy, but it's worse for me now. I can't explain it. He's so overweight that I can't stand to see him. I never know when it's going to happen, and it's driving me crazy. Every night I stay up thinking he might come in. I need to put it out of my mind. I know what you said before, but I'm afraid. You just don't know Dad like I do. He's crazy. He's warned me a hundred times about telling anyone, especially Lyle. Am I a serious wimpus? I don't know I'll make it through this. I can handle it, Andy. I need to stop thinking about it. End quote. Andy Kano was the Menendez brother's cousin and the daughter of Jose's sister, Marta. He was also one of the defense witnesses in the first trial. He stated under oath that Eric had confided him about the sexual abuse from Jose when Eric was 13. 
The prosecutors called him a liar. They said he was making up the story and that there was never any sexual abuse. What's his, what, for what reason? Why would he make up the story? In 2003, Andy died of a drug overdose. In 2018, Marta found that letter written from Eric among Andy's belongings. For the first time, there was actual physical evidence that Lyle and Eric had told someone about the abuse taking place before the trial. But that wasn't the only bombshell. While being interviewed as part of a documentary on the boy band Menundo, band member Roy Rossello alleged that he was drugged and sexually assaulted by Jose Menendez at the age of 13, back when Jose worked for RCA Records. Oh, shit. This, the tape, this, the letter, this, it's it, like this. There's that right reasonable doubt that I had before has now expanded into just regular ass doubt. According to Roy, he had first been abused by music producer Edgardo Diaz before joining the band. Roy alleges that Diaz offered to make him rich and famous, but that he'd have to do things he might not want to do. He claims that he was abused for the first time that night, but did not choose to tell his mother. Roy was from a struggling family, and Diaz was offering a substantial contract. He said that he had to make a decision, and that his decision was not to force his mother to continue to raise a family in poverty. Roy is at least the fourth member of Menudo to raise allegations against Diaz, but he was the first to accuse Jose Menendez. He claims that when he was 13, he was sent to New Jersey to have dinner at an RCA executive's home. During the dinner, Jose offered him a glass of wine, demanding that Roy drink it because it was very good and very expensive. He said that after drinking the wine, everything went blurry. When Roy woke up, he was in a hotel room. As the fog lifted from his brain, he realized that he had been sexually assaulted. He stated, I could barely stand the pain. I couldn't even move. And again, that's all allegedly according to Roy. Just in case I didn't make it fully clear earlier, all claims of sexual assault in this episode are allegations. Yeah, we did right at the start. We said this is all allegations and there's no physical evidence. Still, these new pieces of evidence are huge. They're so huge that the brother's lawyer submitted a writ of habeas corpus to the Superior Court of California in May of 2023, rightly so. According to the petition, the new evidence not only shows that Jose Menendez was very much a violent and brutal man who had sexually abused children, but it strongly suggests that, in fact, he was still abusing Eric Menendez as late as December 1988, just the defense had argued all along. A little snarky at the end there, but the writ obviously has merit. At the time of writing, we're still awaiting final outcome. Rather than throwing out the petition, the court has demanded that the office of the district attorney reply. Not only has the DA off day, DA's office agreed to reply, but they requested an additional 90 days in order to look into the new evidence and do a deep dive into their files, and possibly just to buy time to make a decision. But there's a lot of different ways that this could go, ranging from the sentence being immediately vacated and never brought up again, which is unlikely, all the way to a new trial in which Lyle and Eric are again sentenced to life in prison without parole. By the time you're watching this, the 90 days will have likely already elapsed, so you'll probably know whether or not a new trial has been granted. Wrap up. This case is far more complicated than the media led us to believe back in the 1990s. No kidding. It's like, it's been a roller coaster. It also highlights just how much both the verdict and the manner in which the trial is portrayed can be the product of their time. That's a depressing thing to say about something that I was alive for, but it really is true. Not only was the pervasive idea at the time that boys couldn't be victims of sexual abuse to begin with, but the very notion that a victim might finally lash out at their abuser after years or even decades of abuse was being written off by society as the abuse excuse. Despite contemporary disdain for the abuse excuse, I have to agree with the widely stated belief that if the Menendez brothers had been the Menendez sisters, 
they never would have spent a day in jail. Outside of those broader societal concerns, it's possible that politics of the day may have influenced the trial as well. During her closing statements in the second trial, Leslie Abramson levied some pretty harsh criticism against the California DA's office. She claimed that they had used fraudulent witnesses throughout the trial because the office was desperate for a win. They were coming off three consecutive losses in major trials that were national news. The DA had failed to get a conviction in the McMartin preschool molestation trial, in the O.J. Simpson trial, and in the first trial of the Mendez brothers. But at the heart of this case was really the simple question of whether or not you believe that Lyle and Eric were sexually assaulted by their parents. Since they weren't allowed to tell their story in the second trial, a conviction was all but guaranteed. Yeah, the second trial seemed like a bit of a joke, to be honest, in my opinion. Personally, I'm inclined to believe them. Based on all their testimony, and the testimony and statements of psychology experts, it seems extremely likely to me that their allegations were the truth. Yeah, I get the, I got that feeling throughout the script, Kevin. And whether you, because you've written it or that's just the, the facts of the case, I'm also with you, allegedly. One of the experts that interviewed Eric in the lead-up to the trial even diagnosed him with PTSD. Of course, there's another much less simple question to answer at the heart of this case. How much does it matter? If you believe that everything Lyle and Eric said was a lie, then you are undoubtedly either happy with their sentence or annoyed that they didn't get the death penalty. Or you live in one of those European countries where people don't get locked away for 80 years for a single crime, even if that crime was a double murder. However, if you believe their accounts of a lifetime of abuse, then what? They still killed their parents. Their desire to do so may be understandable, and you may even feel a great deal of sympathy for what they endured. But hopefully, we agree that you can't just kill people. Yeah, I agree with that, of course. But it obviously is like, a, should be a way reduced sentence. Way reduced sentence. At least not in an extrajudicial manner. If all the allegations against Jose are true, including those from Ray Rossello, they're not absolutely a vote to get in the death penalty, but no person gets to make that decision on their own. It takes 12 random strangers to make that sort of decision. In all likelihood, I expect this to wind up seeing a new trial with the additional evidence. If that happens, my best guess, as definitely not a legal expert, is that Lyle and Eric will be found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to time served. Yeah, I think that's probably exactly what's going to happen. The maximum sentence in California for voluntary manslaughter is 11 years, so even if they had been sentenced to two consecutive terms, that would have long since ended. That said, unless some extremely gross corruption within the DA's handling of the case is uncovered, which I have no doubt, no reason to suspect will happen, I wouldn't expect the brothers to receive any sort of financial compensation for the extra time spent in prison, as we so often see when the legal system has to remedy previous mistakes. They admitted to the murders, so it's not like they were being railroaded and wrongly convicted. They may have just been overconvicted. But no matter what ultimately happens with the Menendez brothers and their potential shot at life outside prison, I just hope that the newly uncovered evidence helps reopen a public dialogue about the 1990 Hoopsmark Johnson card. I'm still sitting on a stack of those things, and a new trial is just what I need to finally move them for a profit. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, taking it all the way back to the beginning with those baseball, uh, basketball cards or whatever. This has been a long episode. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you enjoyed it. I mean, what can be said? People got killed, but like, I hope you found it interesting. If you're enjoying this as a podcast, please do leave us a review or a rating on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And um, yeah, if you're watching on YouTube, like and subscribe. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for being here. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.